To be absolutely precise, I was waxing my balls. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 475. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 1st of June, 2021. Today's episode, a former Southwest Airlines captain admits exposing himself to a female first officer in the cockpit. The pilot of a corporate Learjet executes a maneuver not meant for transportation aircraft. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tail flying all the fours. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 475 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 10-10 wins in New York City. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining me today from his mobile studio in... Ontario, California. It's a world traveler, an airplane mechanic, Brightling Cognoscenti, fitness hound, and international air freight captain, Miami Rick. Hello, everybody. Happy to be back. I'm pumped about this one. It'll be a good one. Awesome. Wow. That would mean that that would be pretty impressive, I think. So we're also joined by his studio in. In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Professional photographer, former RAF RAAF fighter pilot. He's a retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airlines. It's Captain Nick. Welcome, Captain Nick. <laughs> you, can, you can speak over that, Rita. Anyway, oh, a, a pinch, a pinch yeah, and a punch for the first of the month. Sure. All right. <laughs> Let's. You got those perfectly timed. That's about the test. I'm going to come over there and wring your neck, Captain Jeff. Oh, I welcome it. Let's do some news. <laughs> and that would be in the news if you wrung my neck. It's against the law over here. Stand by for news. All right, we'll start right off with something fresh in the news. It just happened over the weekend. Uh, it is a Citation jet crash uh, just outside of Nashville in Smyrna. Uh, let's see. And it uh, took off from the Smyrna, uh, what county? Rutherford County Airport, I believe, and um, took off into some weather. Um, 
Overcast 1300, uh, was instructed to turn to a heading and climb to an altitude, and then uh, didn't hear much at all from this person and uh, this pilot. And uh, there were several on board, I think seven total, and they all died in the crash. And we have some some video with audio from Live ATC, and we're going to play that right now. Okay, we're clear for 3-2, and we're going to 0 9 zero, uh, at or above 3,000 for 6 6 no, maintain 3,000. And we'll maintain 3,000 for 6 6 And none of the silent brakes are taken out of here. 6 6 uh, Bravo Kilo, departure on frequency. Uh, 6 6 Bravo Kilo with you. 6 6 Bravo Kilo, say altitude, your radar contact 3 north at Smyrna, flighting of 130. No response. Six Bravo Kilo, did you copy your heading one three zero? One three zero six six Bravo Kilo. Yeah, the video here says silence is not trimmed. There's six Bravo Kilo, call maintain one five thousand fifteen thousand. And more. There's six six Bravo Kilo departure heading here. No response. It's descending right now. Got up to about three thousand. Six six Bravo Kilo departure heading here. Now he's down to two thousand feet. 1900. Today from 66 Bravo Kilo, out of here. 1800. Sure, wings 1947, National Departure, Redder Contact, call maintain 15,000. Climbing again. 15,000, Redder 1947. I know, sir, I don't see a thing, and I'm halfway in the clouds. Here's your GLF, Roger. Set to maintain 4,000. Let me know when you get out. Down to 4,000, do you? Blue Raider 71, you're on Raider Contact, about 4 east of Merce Trail, National Altimeter 3003. 3003. Go ahead and end it right there. The uh, There's just one more call from air traffic control trying to get um, uh, 66 Bravo Kilo uh, to answer, and no answer because. As we know, it crashed into, uh, what's it called, Percy Priest Lake, something like that. Um, let me get back to the Evernote. And it uh, turns out a um, couple of um, somewhat famous people on board. Um, the uh, I, I received a um, message from one of our patrons at Patreon. Um, and uh, let me see, let me make sure I get the proper person uh, identified here Hudson Rhodes there we go I just remembered <laughs> I just I uh, still haven't found his his email from uh, patreon but anyway Hudson Rhodes uh, one of our patrons uh, sent me a message this morning and said that uh, one of the uh, people on board was uh, a gentleman who um, played Tarzan 
in one of the Tarzan movies, I'm not sure which one, Joe Lara or Lara and his wife, I think uh, was some kind of a Christian dietitian or something like that. Uh, diet guru. Diet guru. And uh, she was on board as well, uh, along with some others. And uh, so they're, they're, you know, starting the investigation. It was a 1982 Cessna 501. Um, uh, looking at the um, ADSB printout, let me see if I can uh, get this to appear. There we go. Okay. This is the uh, ADSB exchange uh, track of altitudes and airspeeds as uh, the accident flight took off from Smyrna Airport. And initially they're climbing straight ahead. And then right about the time that uh, he is making the right turn to heading 090, which was the initial clearance, um, is about the time that he climbs up into the uh, cloud, the bottom of the cloud layer. And so he's turning, speed's increasing, uh, and then at um, at some point, I think after uh, radar contact with um, departure control, uh, and they give them the instruction to fly heading 130, um, and then there's some time between the instruction issued and the readback, uh, we'll note that on this display here, that uh, the speed kind of got up pretty high, especially for a uh, the nickname of the Citation, that particular model, one of those early ones, is a Slotation, because they don't go that fast. have that nice straight wing, and it wasn't designed to go you know super fast. And there are points here where the speed is up to like 309, I think. And I believe the maximum uh, speed for that particular airplane is, is less than 300 knots. I, I think it's actually less than 280 knots below 14,000 feet. So, um, so could that have been the noise, uh, we heard in one of his transmissions? Yeah. I was going to point that out. I, no, I, no. You know what that, like, a, that, that noise, was, was that is, an ELT? No, that, those are the igniters, um, that some airplanes, when you have the uh, engine igniters on, it kind of bleeds through in the, uh, intercom. Um, oh, okay. So that's that's the sound we heard um, on one of those transmissions or a couple of those transmissions from um, eight eight or six six uh, Bravo Kilo. And is that uh, is that something that happens in in, in smaller airplanes? I've never I've never I, heard that. I before. hear that quite often, and it's usually in business jets that I hear it in or uh, turboprops. Okay. You can hear that bleed through, and and it's kind of uh, one of the characteristics of those older Citation jets that, uh, that, makes, that makes when the igniters are on. And the reason why, you, of course, you'd have the igniters on for takeoff and landing, and then anytime you fly into precipitation, uh, and so I'm sure that uh, the uh, and and it depends on the airplane, but uh, the airplane mm-hmm. that I fly, we turn on our uh, ignition um, on when it's below plus ten uh, centigrade or Celsius, uh, and we're in precipitation or we're in cloud, and uh, that's just to prevent ice from forming forming on the. Uh, on the uh, inlet of the in engine intakes, so yeah, I mean, and, and I think that uh, it really does depend on the airplane. Um, oftentimes, um, the um, igniters or continuous ignition uh, feature of the engines is is tied 
to your flap position. Um, so on seven five, seven six, triple seven, seven four. Every time you go from flaps up to flaps one, that'll cause the igniter to turn to uh, turn on. I know that in the seven thirty seven, that's not the case. Actually, before takeoff, part of the part of the flow is to go to your engine start selectors and put those in continuous because I guess the flaps aren't tied to a uh, uh, continuous ignition. And as you mentioned, Jeff, yes, every time you select Anna Ice to on, uh, that will turn your igniters on as well, as well as uh, increase your uh, your idle from uh, from uh, flight idle to approach idle. There's other, other things. But, yeah, I, I had never heard the uh, the igniters bleed through the frequency there. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I misspoke earlier. When I, when I was saying turning the igniters on, we turn the – thank you, uh, Rick. Uh, we turn the engine ice on, which automatically turns on the ignition. Exactly. On the uh, 717. And that's pretty standard, right? It's at ten below 10C and all the way down to negative mm-hmm. 40C. Once you get below negative 40C, you can go ahead and turn those off. Unless you're flying uh, a Douglas Unless. <laughs> we don't have any lower <laughs> end, you know, so we could be, you know, minus 70. Oh, really? And they still – if we're in precipitation. No way. They, yeah. Yeah, all the Boeings I've flown, they have a lower temperature limit. They yeah. said below that, you're not, you don't need to worry about it. It it does say that if if you are experiencing, um, if you see the uh, the the marks of ice crystal icing, that even if the temperature outside is below negative forty, to keep them on. Uh, okay. For because remember also when whenever you turn the the um, the um, anise on, that is also going. The other thing that that's going to do, it's going to increase the uh, airflow through the engine, and that's going to you know try to blow that that uh, that uh, that ice, and not let it accumulate uh, and prevent it to going through the core of the engine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and have it go around the the fan duct and uh, keeping the engine from shutting down. So, but interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah ice crystal um, formation is a relatively recent discovery, isn't it? Because I it remember is. it oh, happening yeah. during my career, and uh, my career is only like twenty seven years old in civil aviation. Yeah. Uh, before that, th- no one believed that icing would occur below minus forty because. You know, um, all the moisture in the air at that point is is sort of dry ice crystals, and that won't shouldn't they didn't think would stick to anything no. until, of course, they started getting these engine failures because they found that oh, hang on a minute, it can stick to uh, the fan blades. So right, I think yeah, there are a couple. And the interesting of, um, thing about that is, go ahead, Britt. I'm sorry. Now I was going to say that that the uh, the um, the issue with ice crystallizing the when I found out about it was when I was uh, when I when I flew the triple seven where you have you know the G ninety dash one one five engines the largest turbofan engine in the world and apparently um, ice crystallizing is um, directly related to the um, fan bypass ratio so the, the the greater the bypass ratio the more susceptible that engine is to bypass to um, uh, ice crystallizing. And since all big engines. bypasses are very cool. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. I, I was trying to remember. I think it involved a couple of um, separate instances with um, a business jet that um, lost one, lost one, and the other one, I think, uh, dual engine flame out. And uh, they both managed to, uh, especially, I think I remember talking about it on the show. Uh, one of them was able to get the thing down, dead sticked it in uh, to, I think it was Jacksonville. Uh, this is a few years back, and that was one of the phenomenon actually um, was was uh, discovered that uh, you know you could actually get ice crystal icing yeah. outside of those temperature parameters at high altitudes. Are you thinking about the seven three that death sticked into uh, New Orleans? No, nope. Um, uh, that okay. was uh, I think that was in uh, water talk ingestion. About that later. 
Yeah. Yeah, that was water ingestion. Uh, and this is ice crystal icing. The, I'm trying to, re- cone. Okay, trying to remember gotcha. the um, business jet that uh, uh, it's Someone just in a, the chat room will probably remember. Yeah, maybe yeah. somebody can, can help me out. Um, but um, yeah, I'm doing a quick search on the internet now and I'm not finding it. But uh, anyway, just uh, quickly here, I'll show a picture of the uh, actor um, Joe that uh, played Tarzan. I guess this is his Tarzan here. <laughs> Uh, I can see him being a Tarzan. Uh, he was one of the people who uh, died in this tragic crash. So it appears to me, uh, or it seems, speculating here, of course, that um, perhaps the pilot, first of all, I, I don't know if you all noticed, um, not super professional in the way he's uh, re- reading back clearances. You know, he didn't say clear for takeoff. Uh, he just said, you know, you know clear to go. You know, and and just use language that you don't normally hear professional mm-hmm. pilots use. I mean, and I don't know if that is a, a symptom of something. Uh, I don't know. Um, and uh, maybe the person doesn't fly very much. I don't know that much about whoever was you know piloting this thing. But it seems to me that um, this person may have suffered some sort of uh, disorientation. Uh, when it did sound to me climbs. when he checked in that he had his like he, like he had his hands full like yeah he, uh, you know so uh, I I I'm yeah, I'm with you, I'm with you there Jeff I think that uh, that may be uh, something to yeah that you know. or perhaps an unrecognized instrument failure yeah um, could be yeah and I'm thinking well now these I'm, are the I'm sure that this thing has an I'm autopilot sorry, these, and uh, yeah know, exactly I'm wondering yeah, why you didn't and put I'm the wondering autopilot if these on. are single. I wonder if these are single pilot. These are these are single pilot, aren't they? I think that they can be certified for single pilot, and I think in this case, I've I've heard and read some things that say it was being operated single pilot. It was, hmm. yeah. Three couples. Yeah, I mean that's why I I tell you there. Um, whenever whenever you're and and I've been doing this for years. Whenever the whenever the weather's I'm C or you're taking off into a very very dark night and you can't see the horizon, I do two things. I, I'll click the autopilot on. As soon as possible, and I will leave the APU running in case of an engine failure. Uh, because if an engine fails, it might knock the other generator out, and I don't want to have to. I don't want to be left with only the standby stack. And so, yeah, just um, I mean, if, you, if you're an IMC, you really don't know which way is up. That's the whole point. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yep. So, I guess you know, as we always say, we'll have to just wait and see what the uh, mm-hmm. investigators. Find what were you saying, Liz? To be continued. To be continued, yes, for sure. So, let's move on to the second item, and that involved. Oh, we talked about cargo this cargo flight. Yes, it was a. It's a cargo flight, so it must be the uh, freight dogs uh, problem, or we have to blame it on the blame the freight dog pilots. <laughs> Actually. Uh, this has nothing to do with the pilot. You can't blame it on the pilot, as far as I can tell, anyway. Uh, this from the um, a- Aviation Herald. Uh, the uh, Just a reminder, it was uh, involving a DHL Air Boeing 757-200 freighter. They were operating flight 126 from, uh, is it Leipzig? To Leipzig. Uh, Frankfurt, Maine, Germany. One passenger, two crew. Short little flight. 
They were in the initial climb out of uh, Leipzig's runway 26 left when the crew stopped the climb at about 5,300 feet MSL due to the cargo door opening completely. Several parts separated from the airframe and were distributed over the ground. And uh, let's see. So they immediately returned to Leipzig's uh, runway 8 right, the opposite direction, um, about 15 minutes after departure, stopped on the runway and remained on the runway for about 40 minutes, and then was moved to the apron. Um, and uh, let's see, on May 20th, this happened, by the way, back in uh, February of this year. And on May 26th, just a few days back, the BFU reported in their monthly German bulletin that the cargo door had been fully and partially opened and closed several times while cargo was unloaded from the previous flight, and new cargo was loaded onto the occurrence flight. The captain of the flight stated that it was he who fully closed the cargo door in the end. All monitoring lights on the control panel were extinguished. The door was flush with the fuselage, and the warning lights in the cockpit had extinguished as well. The aircraft was subsequently pushed back, de-iced, departed from runway 26 left about 48 minutes after the cargo door had been closed. During the initial climb, the crew observed an unusual high, unusually high rate of climb for the cabin altitude and unusual cabin pressure. They also felt their ears popping. Cabin pressure control was switched from auto 2 to auto 1. Yes, the natural reaction. Uh, must be something wrong with the pressurization. So let's move right, it. And, and if there... If there was a failure, it would it would it would switch automatically and to and to and to um to touch on the on the rate of climb and descent on the on the on the cabin there. So on the on the cabin on the pressurization control panel, you have a, a knob with a little uh, a line and a little arrow on the panel, and you put the line on the on the arrow, and that's that's what that's what where you should leave it. But the reason behind that is because. When it's when the index is there, when that little knob is on the index, it'll give you a, a 500 foot a minute climb and a 300 foot a minute descent when uh, when it's on there, uh, whether it's on auto one or auto, or auto two. And like I said, if auto one or auto two fails, then the other one automatically takes over. Uh, and another interesting uh, fact about the um, cabin altitude controller is that after you land, the way the system checks itself is that. Um, let's say you had auto one selected for the entire flight, right? The second that you land, the weight on wheel switch or the squat switch will open the outflow valve to make sure you can open the door uh, at once you park. The system that actually depressurizes and opens the outflow valve is not the controller that you had on the entire flight. So let's say you flew with auto one the entire time, auto two will open the outflow valve and that will count as the check, the operational check of the auto two system so that if there is an issue, it'll show up in your status messages so you can deal with it on the, um, with, uh, with maintenance once you park. So cool. Almost like a bite check, yeah. right? Um, internal exactly, yeah. Built. test internal bite check. Exactly. Right. All right. So, uh, let's see the passenger, uh, who it was a captain for another operator and also type rated on the 757 200 occupied the passenger seat, between cockpit and upper cargo bay, reported he heard permanent air rush, or a permanent air rush, in this phase of the flight. Climbing through 5,100 feet and 240 knots indicated the crew heard a loud noise, and concluded from their cockpit indications that the cargo door had malfunctioned and had opened. The crew declared an emergency, stopped the climb, reduced the speed, and decided to return to Leipzig. As we as we mentioned, uh, due to the low wind situation, the aircraft landed on eight right opposite to their takeoff direction. 
While turning left, the crew observed the autopilot was struggling to perform the commanded changes of heading. The captain thus took manual control of the aircraft and noticed significant changes of the aircraft responses to control inputs. During that time, because you'll remember that the cargo door was like sticking straight up. It's like another vertical stabilizer toward the front of the airplane. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's see. Uh, they also noticed that during that time, the crew, uh, let's see, received messages, left aft fuel pump and fuel configuration. Left fuel tank showed one ton less fuel than expected. The left turn was completed. And once, and this is actually, we'll find out a little bit more in their investigation that it had something to do with the fact that the airplane was not being, yeah, it was not in a coordinated turn and uh, it's had some lateral G forces, I think, that caused the fuel sensors to give kind of erroneous information because after they after they finished the turn everything uh all the messages disappeared and fuel quantity indication for the left tank began to increase to where it should have been this is the part i kind of highlighted this and i i don't know what you guys think about this i i don't know if, if i'm sure i would not have done this after establishing the aircraft on final approach course the crew activated one autopilot first then all three and performed an automatic landing without further problems I don't, I'm not sure why he would have put the autopilot on, especially after, you know, knowing that the airplane wasn't really performing the way it should when they were flying it manually. But I don't know. That's just maybe a little critique on my I point. I think the, the, where he had a, you know, trouble controlling, controlling the aircraft is when he was making that turn, yeah. you know, having that cargo door sticking up, you know, at the top of the fuselage, like a sail, um, Mm-hmm. I I'm I'm with you as well. I w- I would not have connected, uh, you know, put the autopilot on. Uh, but I I feel like um, once you intercept the localizer and you're tracking the localizer inbound and the and and the glide slope uh, coming down, I guess the 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 inputs, whether they're manual or automatic, uh, required to maintain uh, the ILS down to the runway are are minimal. Yeah. Um, the um, on the seven fifty seven and seven sixty seven. Uh, you control pitch with not with elevator. I mean, on, on, on while on autopilot, you don't control it with elevator. You control it with stabilizer. Um, you use either the left or the center um, stabilizer in each autopilot. The left autopilot, center autopilot, right autopilot. They each use. Um, so if, if you're using, if you're flying with the left autopilot, you fly with the left hydraulic system. The center autopilot, you can fly with either the left or the center, and then the right autopilot only the center. So when you have an autopilot on, you're only using one of two stabilizer motors, which means that the stabilizer trims at half rate because you're only using one. And so the the the, um, the uh, corrections to maintain that are very 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 small. And the reason why the you would turn on the other two autopilots to do an automatic landing is because when you select the approach mode of the autopilot, the other two autopilots come on for a triple channel autopilot auto um, auto land and at one time only one autopilot's working is just that if that autopilot degrades then you have other two another two autopilots to take over uh in, in that uh, critical phase of flights it's not like you're flying with three you're just flying with one at all times so here's my thinking on that jeff and i have i agree with both of you when the autopilots are engaged it's much harder to tell what the uh aircraft um, flight controls are moving to what position they are. Now, of course, you've got a yoke, and I'm assuming the yoke will give you an indication, mm-hmm. but it's much easier to feel with your hands when you're hand-flying the airplane if you're getting to the limit of control. Uh, and since they've had control difficulties, I would have preferred myself to 
be completely aware of what was happening with the aircraft controls, not let the autopilot do that for me. Um, I'm with I agree. You. I agree. The only the only thing I didn't touch on on triple channel autopilot is that when you're when you actually have the the autopilots the all three autopilots uh, on for 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 the uh, landing portion of the flight, uh, the rudder comes in as well because during normal autopilot operations, uh, the rudder is not part of the um, uh, the flight control surfaces that uh, the autopilot controls. So on the landing portion of it, it actually is because. You can perform an auto land with a, a certain amount of crosswind, and the only way to keep that you know, flight coordinated is with rudder. Uh, and on the rollout as well, to track centerline, the autopilot will will uh, will um, uh, actuate your nose wheel to keep tracking down the center of the runway. So now, if there if the situation was like a low visibility situation, then I could see you know yeah. definitely want to you know mm-hmm. you know have that auto auto flight uh, and auto land feature activated, uh, but. Uh, from what I can tell here, it looks like uh, it was uh, VMC below 4,000 feet, um, and the winds weren't really high. Yeah, as we, we've mentioned. heard of plenty of nasty upsets that have occurred when an autopilot has uh, been engaged and has moved controls without the crew realizing to the limit of its ability, mm-hmm. and then, it and then kicked off, yeah. and then boom, the airplane suddenly rolls or suddenly pitches, uh, and you would not want that on final approach. And if you had had a previous uh, handling problem, then I would really uh, have not advised that. So. It's funny you mentioned that, Nick, because uh, that's one of the that's one of the big, big, big time gotchas on Boeing's when you're coming in on a triple channel approach on a on a single engine type scenario on a, on a you know on a seven six or a, or with an end with an outboard out on a seven forty seven. As I said, the the, the autopilot will 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 um, control the rudder as well. As long as all three autopilots are online, but like I said, only one is, is controlling the aircraft at the time. The moment you go around. And you throttle up to you know fly the go around procedure, and you go from approach mode to any other lateral mode, being head and select or LNAV or anything else. The rudder control kicks off, and if you're not ready for it Thank or you. trimmed for it, <laughs> it'll it'll roll you right over. So you yeah, be really it could have come as a nasty that. surprise. And oh, you don't absolutely. really want it to happen when you're close to the yeah. ground. You haven't got a absolutely lot of uh, height to. You really never want it to happen at all. That'd be optimal. Having Probably said that, <laughs> you know, the proof of the pudding is they got the aircraft yeah. safely back on the ground. True. So you've got yeah. to, you know, you've got to give them oh, yeah. credit for that. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm not, absolutely. I, I don't mean to be critical. It's just that I, when I was reading I this, I'm thinking, ah, <laughs> that, I would not have, uh, yeah, yeah, I did mean to. Um, those DHL guys, yeah. No, I'm just yeah, kidding. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I uh, just so, I, you, would not have been what I would have made done. a decision, and yeah. it turned out to be fine because mm-hmm. he got the aircraft safely back. Absolutely. The fact that we, we might not have made this decision doesn't mean his was totally invalid. All right. True. Good point. Good point. Um, let's see. So they got the thing down on the ground, as you mentioned. Success. Happy ending. An inspection of the locking system of the cargo door revealed that the safety pins had not fully engaged with the locking hooks. The action of the locking hooks had not fully extended. The linkage, however, showed no faults. When this condition was manually reproduced, the cargo door could be opened with muscle power hand pressure when it was attempted to close the door via the hand pump of the hydraulic actuator an anomaly in the sequence of movements was observed thus the hydraulic system was examined and air was found in the hydraulic system the investigation checks whether the air was present in the 
hydraulic line prior to the occurrence or only after the hydraulic line was damaged as a result of the opening of the cargo door. I'm not sure I under, understand that sentence, <laughs> but uh, might be a, a little bit of a translation issue there from German to English. Yeah, because um, they, can't, they can't fully establish when the air appeared in yeah, the hydraulic right. system. So, um, that's interesting. Uh, there must have been a mechanical indication. Uh, I, I'm saying must. Uh, I'm asking, actually. Is, what, is there not a mechanical indication, not just um, any uh, micro switches to indicate that the locks are in and not just the door is not on not closed? on the not on the not on the main deck door. Uh, so the main deck door is closed from the galley, right as you come into the airplane. Ah, uh, uh, the cabin crew do that then. Okay, then, right. <laughs> blame well, the cabin. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. There's no cabin. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but there's the the uh, the the main deck door panel is right there, and and then you have the 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 switch for the door itself. Uh, and then you have the switch for the locks, um, and so uh, you'll get a uh, a light for when the door is closed, and then the uh, green light when the doors and uh, when the when the locks are engaged. And in the flight deck, you have two lights. You have one in the front panel on the first officer's side to the left of this uh, airspeed indicator. It says main cabin door, uh, uh, main deck door open, and then on the overhead uh, panel on top of the captain's head, just to the right of the inertial reference. Uh, system panel the top row there there's a little light that says doors and also on your uh, on your ICAS your engine indicating crew alert and system on the top screen there you'll get a uh, an, an advisory that says doors so you have several places to look at um, the lower cargo doors so the belly doors uh, you do have a little sight little round side view windows where you see uh, a, a yellow line that tells you that the that the locks are over top dead center and they are engaged, uh, in fact engaged. So you, you can visually check them that way, uh, but, but not the main one. Not the main one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I wonder yeah. why they do it for one and not the other. The logic well, is you remember, do it for them all. Well, remember the remember the these are these are conversion uh, converted uh, freighters. Uh, well, I mean, a lot of these are converted freighters, and so uh, I, 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 guess, I guess they just. Don't. But then again, I guess that argument's out the window because uh, factory freighters don't have it either on the on the main do- the main door. Okay. The seven four didn't, and then the triple seven didn't. So I don't know. That's a good question. Not the first time that this has happened, by the way. Uh, the BFU hmm. referenced a similar occurrence on December sixth, twenty fourteen. Yakushia, I'm not sure Yakutia. Airlines B seven fifty seven two hundred at um, Magadan. Yep. Uh, cargo door open in flight. Same kind of thing. Um, so uh, references that incident in the Aviation Herald as well. So we'll have a link to this article uh, along with the other link to the other incident that uh, is. Did, uh, do you know that similar. incident, Rick? Did those guys get it back all right? I know I'm not. I'm not familiar with the second okay. incident. No. Well, I think they did because I, I see a picture of it on the ground with the door open. Um, let's see. The aircraft sustained minor, if any, damage. They got it. Uh, no, I meant the uh, the one at Magadan. Yeah, that's what I mean. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I'm no, just looking at it right now. now. I just clicked on the link and uh, oh, okay. it had a safe landing about 25 minutes after departure. The cargo door remained attached, and the aircraft sustained minor, if any, damage. 
So yeah, I wanted yeah. before we we move on, I wanted to touch a little bit on just 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 very very briefly on the on the on the fuel pumps and the and the lights. That's it's uh, it's not uncommon to have these lights come on whenever you have a certain amount of fuel in the tank and a certain pitch angle or deck angle. Um, once that uh, that uh, that pitch roll comes back down to normal um, levels, I guess you'll uh, the, the pump will start working again. It's just the pump letting you know that it doesn't it's not putting out the 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 required pressure. Um, but also another thing to keep in mind is that you have two types of pumps, right? You have your boost pump, your electric boost pump, and you have your engine-driven pump. Um, these engine-driven pumps are good up to uh, an altitude of 35,000 feet. So you could actually, you know, theoretically uh, not have your electric boost pump on and have the engine run entirely on its engine-driven pump. And these engine-driven pumps, as as stated, are driven by the accessory gearbox of the engine. So um, once you get above 35, though, you got to make sure you have that... Uh, that uh boost pump on but uh you turn them on on the ground anyway but uh as long as you have uh, fuel in the tank and the engine driven pump going at low altitude you're fine oh and by the way just uh, go ahead nick yeah i was just going to say i'm noticing some weather reports here uh, assuming they're for the airfield we're talking about i might have to take back uh some of the things we said about using an auto land it it looks like it was 500 meters d is that decreasing rvrs for two six left i'm not quite sure what uh, runway landed on um, uh, eight right eight right yeah so the, eight right. Other, uh, the same runway just the opposite end but there certainly was bcfg patches fog bcfg I'm not sure becoming fog yeah no significant cloud um yeah, so could be could have been the one a low yeah. visibility temperature and dew point were within a degree, so yeah. it, it might have been it might, might have been, been the right might have been the right choice. Yeah, so well, I might have to been. take all that. All stuff right, well back. then, never mind. Could, they did the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, could you edit that go. a bit? Yeah, Jeff? <laughs> I have to take that out. <laughs> no, I'm yeah. going to leave it in there just to show that we're 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 below fifty percent again. <laughs> but having said that, it was Cat One throughout. According okay. to that Met uh, forecast. Okay. Well, yeah. And, you know, also could be company policy as well. You know, we don't know what their standard right. operating procedures are in those kind of situations. Um, uh, well, Liz slapped up the below 50% um, <laughs> Damn. image there. She's yeah. quick. And I know. Hard. Yeah, she's harsh. <laughs> That's um, what she said. Harsh critic. But uh, she Liz keeps us uh, on our toes. That's for sure. <laughs> Um, and just to touch back uh, regarding the uh, ice crystal icing uh, dual engine flameouts, I was finally able to find that uh, it was a Beachjet 400. And uh, let's see, the NTSB has also recently called for urgent action, a series of high altitude dual engine flameouts involving Beechcraft Beachjet 400 business jets. Uh, the mm-hmm. latest took place in July. I'm not sure what the uh, date is on this thing that I'm reading here. I think back in 2006. When a Beachjet 400 operated by fractional provider flight options suddenly lost power while descending from 41,000 to 33,000 feet in IMC. Uh, let's see, the pilots were able to restart one of them. And uh, let's see, in November, another Beachjet ha- had to make a dead stick landing after dual engine failure from a descent from 38. So it was a, a Beachjet 400 that uh, suffered the dual engine flameout. Um, anyway. So just to kind of cross the T and dot the I on that one. 
All right. Uh, let's uh, get on with uh, anything else to add about the cargo door uh, incident, guys? No, I think we covered it all. All right. Uh, yes, I was right. BCSG is patches of fuck. Yes. <laughs> all right. Very good. Um, okay, we'll get that. Liz, slap up that uh, better than 50%. There we go. 50% guarantee right there. Yay. <laughs> okay. I feel better now. Uh, let's see. Item C. This is a serious incident. Learjet 31A, Delta Charlie Alpha Mike Bravo on the 28th of December, 2018. This happened. And, you know, they always said, uh, you, you hear this all the time, that those little Learjets, man, they, they fly like little fighter jets. <laughs> so... Apparently, yeah. a, a captain uh, took that to heart. They took off uh, a third, <clears throat> excuse me, a Learjet 31A corporate jet took off at 10:22 uh, UTC at London Biggin Hill Airport, United Kingdom. Uh, the airport of destination was Faro, Portugal. Is that the way or Faro? How do you say that? Faro. Okay. Faro, uh, but, but beautiful place. I love Faro. I love okay. the food there. Well, anyway, go ahead. It was a positioning flight without passengers. Uh-oh. Conducted under instrument flight rules. The pilot in command occupied the left seat and was pilot flying. The co-pilot occupied the, occupied the right seat and was pilot monitoring. Two employees of the company were seated in the cabin. Oh, okay. I thought it was just the two pilots, but I guess a couple other employees were there as well. About one hour of flight time at 11.30 uh, hours, the aircraft was in Portuguese airspace. During the descent, the pilot in command asked the co-pilot if he agreed to fly a roll about the longitudinal axis of the aircraft. <laughs> the co-pilot provided the BFU with a written statement that he said he did not agree to such a flight maneuver, and that's his story when he's sticking with it. And, and he told the pilot in command of that of that feeling. According to the co-pilot statement and the flight data recorder data or data, the pilot in command had disengaged the autopilot at 1136.50 hours at about 13,200 feet pressure altitude and was flying the airplane manually. And then at about 11,500 feet, two steep turns with a bank angle of 140 degrees. <laughs> now think about that for a minute. Uh, 90 degrees is like vertical right and then 140 is another uh, 50 degrees beyond that so it's almost upside down um, to the left and then back again uh, the same 140 degree bank to the right and then the pilot in command conducted the aileron roll about the longitudinal axis of the airplane at about 11,500 feet Leveling off about Once you've got a radar roll going, it's easier to keep going. I know. It would be to go to 140 degrees, stop, mm -hmm. and then come back again. I so, know. Uh, I don't I, know what that was all about. I don't either. Maybe he was like testing the waters to see if he could actually do a full 360 uh, roll. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, the flight maneuver was initiated uh, with 301 knots indicated during the roll. Uh, airspeed decreased continuously. Leveling off occurred with 251 knots indicated, so lost 50 knots in the maneuver. Uh, during the initiation of the flight maneuver, a maximum load factor of 12 point, no, 2.47 Gs occurred, uh, which Ouch. decreased continuously to plus 1 G. Uh, no one was injured on the flight. So, cool. Uh, I've always wanted to do that with a Learjet. I'm, I'm speaking for the pilot in command right now. 
uh, no one found out and we got away with it. Wait, not so fast. <laughs> In May, about f- five months later, the operator charged another company with a routine readout of the FDR data. Uh, do you hear this in the background? Guess what? I do. Oh, the lawn guys are yeah, here. Yeah, the lawn guys are here. Perfect. Perfect time. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, boy. What do I do here? Nothing. That's all right. I mean, it's not Just that keep bad. on going. Okay. Just keep going. Uh, so, uh, anyway, so um, the uh, company uh, charged another company with a routine readout of the flight data recorder as part of the flight flight da- uh, data monitoring program, I'm guessing. After the readout, the flight maneuver was identified to uh, do, identified due to the exceptionally high roll angle data. On the 4th of June, 2019, the operator report, reported the occurrence with the BFU. So that's how they found out about it. And uh, there's a, a graphic here that kind of shows the roll maneuver. Um, but you guys kind of go ahead and jump in and tell me what you think. No, I was just going to say, damn you flight operation quality insurance programs. <laughs> Shoot. Yeah. We thought we got away with it. I wonder what happened. It doesn't no, really the, say anything about what happened to the, to the pilot in command after this. Uh, no, it oh. doesn't. And if you're going to do this, do an aileron roll, do it unloaded. Okay, so yeah. pitch the airplane up. Because you know, during as soon as you start rolling, the nose is going to drop. So mm-hmm. get the nose 15, 20 degrees up. Make sure you've got enough speed to carry the aircraft over the parabola you're going to fly. Then unload to zero G. Do your roll. Don't do it loaded because as soon as you go inverted, if you've still got one G on, the nose is going to drop like a stone and then you'll need two and a half G to pull it back out again. Exactly. So if you're going to do it, think it through and do it properly. I Obviously, the person who did this maneuver um, wasn't um, a military pilot because, you know, you as you just described, Captain Nick, that's the way you do an aileron roll. You don't load it up. You uh, unload the airplane no. a little bit. And Otherwise, gonna... it becomes a barrel roll. Exactly. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it was kind I of a... So the, the way it was described, it was like a, an, a combination between an aileron roll and a barrel roll. And not a good yeah. it, combination. Getting to 2.47 G, I'm pretty sure the airplane is only going to be stretched to two and a half. Well, max. actually, I was going to close. mention that in the, uh, oh, the really? report. Oh. says that... Uh, what page is it on? talks about you know the fact that you're not allowed to do aerobatics in this particular jet but uh, the G limitations uh, I think it was plus three uh, so they oh, managed right? to keep it below the uh, exceedance yeah um, ah, no harm no foul yeah, yeah. really <laughs> I can't yeah. find no, that but- <laughs> oh here we go uh, the operator's manual um, chapter limitations says that the load factor for flight maneuvers with retracted flaps is plus three G to minus one G. So that's actually oh, pretty, that's not bad. pretty decent. It's only half a G more than a big Airbus or a big Boeing. So yeah, exactly. So 2.5, 2.5 yeah. on, on this, on this, this side of the aisle. Yeah. But I mean, if you're if you're feeling frisky, just wait till you have to do your your uh, your upset upset maneuver training, and you don't, you don't. Right. So, oops. <laughs> I didn't uh, mean yeah, to do that. Wait, I don't man. need any upset maneuver training. I've already done my own. 
Exactly. Signed up. He's well. You know, that's how I found out because he signed himself off on the line. Ah, <laughs> that's right. Okay. Uh, Don't you wonder yeah, what the two people? In yeah, the back Liz. Are? Liz is making a good point. She's saying, "What? What about the two people uh, in the passenger cabin? <laughs> wonder what they were thinking about all this." The other two witnesses. Yes. Correction. <laughs> apparently, yeah. Apparently, the pilot in command either bought them off, or maybe they it was planned all along. Perhaps. Mm-hmm. Or well, perhaps they they egged him on and said, "Oh, we want to see this thing go upside down." Yeah, we heard this thing's like flying a fighter jet. Let's prove it. Yeah. And the the first officer was on pretty safe ground until he didn't report him. Right, because exactly. It's all very well saying I didn't agree with it, mm-hmm. but if you've seen your captain do something illegal, you should put in, if necessary, a um, like a chirp report. Uh, what do you call it when you have an anonymous report? Uh, you put in an anonymous report. Uh, yeah, I saying think it's called an anonymous report. <laughs> I'm sure it is. That's exactly what it's called. Yeah. yeah, on this date, this aircraft registration from here to here. <laughs> <laughs> and while you're doing it, you have, to, you have to put a paper bag over your head and cut two holes <laughs> in the eyes. <laughs> Take a selfie. And then you're good. There, yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's the one. Me. There you go. That's the one. <laughs> With a newspaper yeah. of that day uh, in front of the jet that has no damage. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Just to kind of, you know, keep yourself uh, out of trouble as much Just as cover possible. cover your bases, people. Cover that's your bases. Right. Cover your something, that's for sure. Uh, Speaking of covering your something, (laughs) that's a good transition to the next one. Uh, Let's see. This was sent in by uh, Jez T or Gez, G-E-Z. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. If it's a hard G or a soft G. (laughs) No pun intended. Uh, Don't know if you saw this article uh, from the BBC. Uh, Thanks for the podcast. It's very generous to share your time so generously. Keep safe and keep your trousers on on the flight on the flight deck. Um, and he said uh, he's he's proposing an episode title "Flying Low in the Cock Dash Pit?" Question mark. Um, so the article to which he's referring uh, again from the BBC: ex U.S. airline pilot admits lewd act in cockpit mid-flight. Southwest Airlines said it did not tolerate behavior of this nature. A former U.S. airline has admitted committing a lewd incident or obscene act during a flight last year. Michael Hack, or Hawk, H-A-A-K, 60 years old, exposed himself to the female first officer in the cockpit and watched pornography on a laptop, prosecutors said. As the Southwest Airlines flight continued, uh, this gentleman, uh, using that term very loosely, engaged in further inappropriate conduct in the cockpit. It doesn't really say what. Uh, a judge in Maryland sentenced him to one year's probation and ordered him to pay $5,000, a $5,000 fine. The incident happened during a flight from Philadelphia International Airport to Orlando International Airport on the 10th of August, 2020. When, uh, By the way, um, at the end of August, uh, this pilot retired. Hmm. Hmm, coincidence. When, when, yeah, it's a coincidence. When the flight reached cruising <laughs> altitude. <laughs> Uh, he got out of the pilot seat, intentionally disrobed, and watched pornographic media on a laptop. Uh, he further engaged in inappropriate conduct as the first officer continued to perform her duties, which means, in this case, flying the airplane. And uh, he had never 
met the first officer prior to this flight. <laughs> well, what do you think of me now? Well, yeah. <laughs> She'll never forget him now. Uh, he, in, a, in a statement via video link, he apologized for his behavior, stating, It started as a consensual prank between me and the other pilot. I never imagined what? it would turn into this uh, turn into this in a thousand years. Uh, let's see. U.S. Magistrate Judge Mark Colson <laughs> told him that his behavior had a traumatic effect on the first officer and could have affected the safety of passengers. So again, he of Longwood, Flor- Longwood, Florida. Hmm. I'm not making this up. Um, <laughs> no, <come> was, <laughs> was, a, was a pilot with Southwest Airlines for 27 years before retiring at the end of August last year. Uh, in a statement, the airline said it did not tolerate uh, behavior of this nature. Yeah, and uh, prompt. Uh, w- we will take prompt action if such con- uh, conduct is substantiated. Except that uh, then they learned that he had already voluntarily voluntarily left the airline. It also said, as a result, it had ceased paying him any benefits he was entitled to following his retirement. So, wow, that was an expensive prank. Yeah, it was an expensive prank. Uh, Liz says. You sure you're spelling that right? What? That prank? Yes. Never mind. That, well, P- you know, P-R-A-N-K. Okay, that. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, I think the guy the guy wishes he'd uh, he'd been an Airbus pilot. Apparently, the last uh, year of his career, so uh, you know, just figured. Well, you see, if a, he'd been an Airbus pilot, joystick, he'd, have, so, uh, he'd have had that uh, tray out, and he wouldn't have seen a thing. <laughs> no, I'm talking about the joystick. <laughs> oh, that, uh, his joystick yeah. or the aircraft joystick? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you know, just up to him, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this guy was a Boeing pilot, though, was he? No, uh, yeah, he was because well, he was flying for Southwest Airlines. Yes, yeah, seven thirty-seven pilot. Yeah. What could I say? Well, <laughs> I don't know what else to say there. Oh man! No, yeah. do um, see, my question here is how did he how did he manage to get up off his seat and disrobe in a seven thirty-seven very flight small deck? And it's not exactly cockpit. it's not the not the roomiest yes, of places. So, uh, perhaps he was a very small chap, not <laughs> long wood at all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh my. Oh my! Ah, the possibilities for show titles here are yep. just tremendous. Yeah, in fact, Liz has yeah. uh, come up with uh, one suggestion already. Let's see: aviate, disrobe, communicate, navigate. <laughs> uh, Very nice. All right. Well, that was an interesting one. And uh, you know, here's a public uh, service announcement from the APG. Hey, don't do that. No. no. Yeah. No. It's not nice. No. No. We 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 don't want to see it. Nobody wants to see it. Thank Nobody you. Wants to see that. No matter no, no matter how much you think that it's consensual, it's still not a good idea. <laughs> All right. Um, continuing on. Moving on quickly here. American and Southwest Airlines ban alcohol after rise in violence. And this is from the the Times. The Times. <laughs> Sent in by that captain. <laughs> Sent in by some some goofball, apparently. Somebody's drinking there. The guy that's drinking a beer. Uh, Who, Captain me? Nick. Yeah, you. Uh, a rise in violent oh, incidents well. has prompted two of the biggest U.S. airlines to ban alcohol on flights as passenger numbers surge after the vaccine rollout. The announcement by American and Southwest followed an incident filmed on a phone camera in which a 28-year-old female passenger was seen to punch a female flight attendant in the face after she was asked to keep her seatbelt fastened, the Southwest flight attendant lost two teeth 
and the passenger was charged with battery, causing serious bodily injury and banned for life from the airline. There have been many, many reports, 2,500 reports of unruly behavior by passengers made to the Federal Aviation Administration this year, a significant increase that began in late 2020. Around 1,900 of the reports concerned passengers refusing to comply with the federal mandate to wear masks on aircraft. In a typical year, there are often no more than 150 reports of serious onboard disruption. What an increase. Yeah, no kidding. And it's an, another That's interesting right. stat is every single one of these reports occurred on a Boeing. Hmm. Coincidence? <laughs> I don't oh, think on. so. No, I'm just kidding. Got to be some Airbus ones. There, I'm sure there were. Yeah. You guys have Airbuses out there, don't you? Yeah, we do. Yeah, and, sadly. And uh, you know what? Sadly. I, I think, <laughs> sadly, I, uh, several of those uh, were JetBlue flights, and I believe JetBlue flies a lot of those Airbuses along, along with um, uh, some true. jungle jets. I was going to suggest that perhaps you have to be drunk to get on a Boeing, but you know, <laughs> I think that's probably a bit unfair, don't you? That is, that is quite unfair, and I'm glad yes. you didn't say that. Yeah, it's very unfair. Very glad yeah, you didn't good, say yeah. that. Yeah. Glad, glad that's I'll, not I'll on the record. Yeah. I definitely won't say that. Then. Uh, let's see. Oh man, Sarah- see, this is this is why I fly freight. This is why. I fly <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't blame you. In this case, oh, I definitely Lord. don't blame you. Oh. Well, uh, the president, the international president of the Association of Flight Attendants, Sarah Nelson, said, "We have just never seen anything like this. Uh, we've never seen it so bad." Yeah. Um, and then uh, Pete Buttigieg, 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 yeah, whatever his name is, <laughs> uh, who was uh, a um, uh, someone who is looking to run uh, as a presidential candidate for the Democratic Party, who is now the U.S. Transportation Secretary, urged passengers to be civil with staff who have suffered suffered a lot of stress during the pandemic. Um, anyway. So, if you want to read the whole article, it's in the show notes. Anything to add, sir, since you're the one that threw this in here? No, not really. I just thought it was a very sad um, indictment of, uh, the, you know, what happens perhaps when you get the stress of um, the pandemic uh, and different people's attitudes to what they consider safe uh, and then mix it in with alcohol and then reduce the cabin pressure to six and a half thousand feet no, like no. happens on every flight and mm-hmm. everybody kicks off you know yeah, yep. sounds like a uh, sounds like a Ryanair flight full of uh, you know, <laughs> yes, soccer fans on their way to a Champions League <laughs> yeah. match that does not sound like we're still on the way home having oh, lost man. exactly oh. yeah. wow yeah. All right. Well, hey, people, behave, please. You know, don't drink. Well, I guess you cannot now Be in the nice American Southwest. <sighs> well, oh, here's an interesting one. A bat causes a Newark-bound Air India flight to divert. This is from One Mile at a Time. Yes, that was the theme from the 60s version of Batman. <laughs> I, I just read that as causing them to divert one mile at a time. And I'm thinking, well, how else do you do it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, let's see. Um, let's see. On Thursday, May 27, uh, Air India Flight 105 had quite an adventure. A uh, Boeing 777-300ER with the registration code Victor Tango Alpha Lima Mike was scheduled to operate the ultra-long haul flight from Delhi to New- Newark. The plane took off from Delhi at 2.27 a.m. Ooh, 
as scheduled. That hurts just to read that. Uh, but about 30 yeah, minutes after takeoff, bad. a bat started flying around the cabin. Initial reports have suggested that the crew spotted a dead bat carcass in business class, though the video footage suggests that the bat was alive and well during this incident. And there's a picture in here of um, a bat flying through the cabin. I don't think anybody just tossed the dead bat. It looks like a, a, a live bat flying through the uh, cabin. Um, they were kind of afraid that somebody might actually uh, take a bite out of that bat and then cause COVID-21. We're not yeah, yeah, sure. Either that or the bat was from Transylvania. Uh, Ooh, could be. He now, just forgot forgot to yeah. change to his normal uh, normal shape. Yes. That's exactly right. Yes. It's a new IFE offering. A new he was going to count how many offering. seats yes. there were. I, I, I have a question. One hour mark now, Jeff. Uh, mm. Thank you, Liz. She says we're at the one hour mark. I have a question here, and I'm going to share something with you all. So if you could put me full screen, Liz. I'd appreciate it. Okay. Now, this uh, is in the article as the um, the flight in-flight doodle. <laughs> and I'm wondering, at first when I saw this, I'm thinking, oh, those Navy pilots, they're at it again. <laughs> that's, their, uh, that's how you enter a holding pattern in the Navy. It's in the NATOPS, actually. Are you sure this isn't from the so previous yeah, story? Yeah, it's that. not from the previous story. It has nothing to do with the oh. Southwest um, oh. from... From Long, what was it called? Longwood, Florida. Longwood, Longwood Florida. Yeah. All right. <laughs> anyway, I just thought that was an interesting. Um, that is that is very interesting. Very, uh, the very. fact that he obviously soaked the ground under his first holding pattern with so much aviation fuel, he decided to move over and soak somebody else. <laughs> yeah, but is it just me, or am I seeing a um, a phallic um, kind of? Uh, no, it's just possibly. You. Yeah. yeah, it's just me. Yeah, uh, I'm a psycho. <laughs> but um, I mean, presumably they killed it because they said eventually someone said there was a bat carcass. So yeah. I'm going, just you know, I it's, it's very sad. The bat's going to die anyway because when they get send people on board to get rid of a bat, they're not going to carefully capture it and release it back to the wild. They're going to swap it with a tennis racket. So um, I'm just wondering why they didn't just do that and carry on to Newark. They must have dumped an awful lot of fuel. Yeah. That's an expensive bat, I tell you. Yep. Yeah. Very expensive. I'm sure they did bat an eye. Now, right. some people are going to say that would be cruel, but I'm thinking of the, uh, the damage to uh, the atmosphere uh, if you dump that amount of aviation fuel. It was fuel. not going green. Mm -hmm. Just think of that. Oh, yeah. So I'm not ready Waste for that. Pollution. Uh, let's see here. I'm sure I, if I hit this one, We're going I got lucky. <laughs> well done. There you go. All right. Although, I mean, uh, I mean, but in, in all seriousness, you, you would, you would, um, you would um, dump that fuel at, um, at, an, at a high enough altitude for it to, but I mean, it, it doesn't, doesn't take away from the fact that you are polluting the atmosphere and all that, but if, if you dump from yeah. a certain altitude, from, from an, a high enough altitude, it'll all vaporize and, you know, not actually, you know, breach the ground. So Very true. All righty. Well, that does it for our news segment today, and that means, of course, it is now time to get to know the guys, in this case, on this particular show it's getting to know us when we talk about what we've been doing between episodes it just seems like just a few days ago 
that we were, oh, wait a minute. It was just a few days ago when Steph and I were recording the show <laughs> and Liz as well. Um, and uh, so I have not, I'm going to start because there's really nothing to say other than I got to sing again over the weekend, which I really enjoyed doing. And then, um, yeah, I haven't uh, had a trip yeah, a until uh, tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I have layovers in Dallas, Texas, and Savannah, Georgia, and I'm looking forward to that. And that's it, pretty much for me. Um, wow. That was quick. Let's see. Uh, Rick, what have you been up to, yes, sir? sir? I have, so I got back from work a couple, what was it, uh, two Two weeks ago, almost two weeks ago, uh, you know, did the the uh, the standard uh, you know home stuff that needs to be done when you've mm-hmm. been away for a week and a half. Um, you went to work, and then we drove. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and exactly, I actually went to work. I actually go on days off when I'm at work. You know, mm-hmm. you know pilots understand that. Um, so uh, we drove the new puppy from uh, Phoenix uh, to Caius Parents in uh, San Luis Obispo in the Central Coast. There, it was a really nice drive, about an eleven and a half hour drive um, through the Mojave Desert, uh, desert, and then up the. Um, uh, we came up through the north there and a little skirted wine country, and then that that to the coast. It was really nice. So. Uh, did that, spend a couple of days out there at uh, her parents' house with the dogs, our two dogs, our new puppy, and their two dogs. So there's five dogs in the house all around. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a dog house out there. Wow, dog heaven. Yeah, it's a dog heaven. We love it. And then I, uh, I left for work uh, from there, which is interesting because they're so, you know, based on Ontario, there are no direct flights between uh, uh, the San Luis Airport and Ontario. So I actually had to go back to Phoenix to come back down to Ontario. So I did that, and then the following day I left for um, my uh, annual uh, line check, which was which was nice. I were uh, it was uh, uh, an Ontario to uh, Honolulu flight, and about halfway through the flight, I started getting the ATIS for Honolulu, and uh, I was really excited because the winds were out of the west, which is not something that happens all the time. Uh, And the interesting thing, uh, the, the reason why that's interesting is because there is. Uh, there aren't any straight-in approaches from the west into Honolulu because of the high terrain to the to the uh, uh, east of the airport, um, and so you have a procedure called the uh, as an LDA, which is a localizer type directional aid, which you, you basically brings you in at an angle to the runway two six left, and at a certain point. You break off the approach and and, uh, and and visually line yourself up with the runway and land. So I was looking forward to doing that, but at the, at the last minute, the winds changed back around, and it was a you know a very boring ILS to because uh, you would have left. had a really so, nice view uh, of Diamond Head, right? If you'd come in on the LDA. Oh man, because you yeah you fly. Have you ever done it? I think I have. Yeah, that's what yeah, I'm going to say. Yeah, yeah so for I, sure. I remember. <laughs> It was, it's a lot of fun flying in. I mean, I love, I love that place. But anyway, so I landed eight left, you know, no, no problem. And, and then I've been doing nothing but uh, Hawaii's uh, out and back. And then tomorrow I do my last one um, yeah, before going on days off or looking at uh, driving back down to Phoenix with our three dogs and then uh, back out to work then. So uh, I'll stay, I'm staying in the lower 48 uh, the next couple of trips. It's going to be a nice, uh, nice change of pace for me. Um, yeah, you so mentioned that on that, the. Uh, really thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, uh, send in the audio about the flap synchro wire, the flap synchro wire fa- yeah. failure or whatever. And uh, you mentioned at the end of that mm-hmm. all the 
cool places you're going to be flying uh, in the lower 48 uh, this month. Yeah, looking forward to that. Excellent. Um, Captain Nick, um, I don't know why you weren't on the show. Well, we do know why, because you sent in audio feedback as well. And uh, why don't you kind of tell us about how wonderful your little holiday was? (laughs) <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, um, you, you're you're aware that I set off. Uh, this was actually our delayed holiday from last year, uh, when uh, the pandemic hit. We had to, you know, cancel and rebook. So uh, my darling wife uh, picked uh, last week for us to uh, occupy a lovely holiday cottage in a tiny little uh, uh, village in Cornwall, which is like the bottom left-hand corner. The uh, bit that sticks out into the Atlantic Ocean uh, of uh, England, and um, it was a really sweet little cove. Uh, we were in the last cottage. Um, it was very nicely uh, decked out, uh, small but uh, perfectly formed, as they say. We were about a hundred steps from the pub, which was open, brilliant, and um, had served good food. Uh, so we just uh, you know, wandered down there. It's always a bit of a nightmare traffic getting down to Cornwall. It's a very popular uh, holiday destination and the roads are often crammed. But we had a lovely time down there. The only problem was that the decent weather didn't really arrive until we were about to leave. <laughs> so we had we had a couple of days when you know we were getting pretty heavily rained on. It was cold and windy. But uh, like they say, um, the only thing uh, wrong with the weather, if you're not enjoying it, is uh, if you've got the wrong clothes on. So uh, we actually packed, you know, good waterproofs and warm gear. So uh, we were we were out on the beach anyway, walking the dogs in the wind and the rain. It was fabulous, and um, nice area to investigate, and very close to uh, Tintagel. Uh, which uh, is the site of a really, really ancient uh, castle. It stretches back to the Iron Age. And uh, it's an interesting bit of uh, the coastline there. There is basically a rocky outcrop, uh, which was joined to the mainland by a sort of um, a, a... a walkway of stone uh, that was all the that joined it was this kind of bridge of stone um, and so it was a perfect place to build a castle because it would have been almost impossible to, to uh, attack it um, uh, and um, sadly eventually the sea weathered away and the uh, the access uh, you know the, the bit of stone that the, the cliff really that joined uh, this island to the mainland broke away and so um, you know it sort of stopped being used um, very much as, as a defensive castle but in its time it was a, a wonderful medieval place and it gave birth to the concept that this was where uh, King Arthur was uh, brought up at least conceived and possibly brought up um, uh, King Arthur. There was an Arthur uh, in ancient history uh, in England, but um, the King Arthur um, legend uh, is a much more recent invention and much amplified uh, over the years. So uh, you know, um, you can take it for what it is. But uh, it's, it is a lovely place to go and uh, visit. And that picture behind me is a fantastic statue. Uh, of what someone's impression of uh, the windswept cliffs and 
this rather big drag old King Arthur with Excalibur would have looked like. But uh, it was just really very nice. Last few days, gorgeous and hot. And then uh, we were leading up to the bank holiday, which was for you over here was sort of a memorial uh, day weekend. Mm -hmm. So we headed yep. home, just uh, to, uh, a bank holiday for us, a three-day weekend. Everyone was going to come out. The weather was going to be fantastic. We set off a little early to come home and beat the traffic, which we managed, and then had a lovely couple of days here. Been playing bowls, but very sadly, you know, I've got a bit of a dodgy back. Um, I was just about to start my first uh, big competition, uh, a national competition, of several rounds uh, for the champion of champions. And uh, I put my back out, um, you know, just doing something incidental on the side of the green, bending over and uh, cleaning my um, bowling balls before I use them. And uh, <laughs> cleaning <laughs> wife, one thinks I'm sorry, what, you're funny. polishing. Uh, I should want to polish my bowls. <laughs> uh, you didn't fly for Southwest, did you? <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear! Uh, so uh, many jokes. Uh, Liz, you're the only adult here. Tell them. No, off. no, she's not. You should hear what she's saying. <laughs> we need Steph badly. Sadly, I had, I had my back in spasm. They're all laughing for for over two days. I played, oh, didn't play well uh, that day and the next because. Uh, I, I was just very, um, I was going to say I was very stiff, but I know what you guys are going to do. <laughs> My back was wow. very stiff. Yeah. It was very hard to move. So uh, it has just started to free up. So after you're, taking you're not a making little, it better. <laughs> after taking a lot of little pills. You know, I'll just feed you guys the lines <laughs> and you can, you can follow up. Just the softballs up for us. Yeah, yeah exactly right. I'll, I'll be your straight man hand. for a change. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm, luckily, I'm just about out of pain now, uh, but I, I'm looking after them because I'm very worried it'll, it'll go again. Mm. Anyway, by the by. Geez, mm. glasses are expensive, aren't they? I went mm. into the opticians today and... First time for two years, first time since I, before I retired, I thought, well, I might as well go and get my eyes checked. And uh, the, the lady said, yeah, you, you say you haven't been seeing very well? <laughs> yeah, we know why. <laughs> yeah, a bit. <laughs> a little bit, possibly. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not a pilot anymore. She said, yeah, but you drive a car. So yeah, you still have to see. Well, give, give me some new glasses. Yeah. So we are, we are at, we're, we're back at 2020 or? Uh when well, I had my last ones. I think it was uh, 2019. The the glasses no, you have on right glasses. now are those the new ones or? No, these are 20. Actually, these are 2018. Ah, these okay. glasses. I, I'm using the same frames because uh, I I did invest in expensive but really nice wire frames, mm -hmm. and uh, this will be the third set of lenses those frames have had. They're going to be nearly 10 years old. Very nice. So Very I nice. tell you, that's it saves in the long run if you invest in good there frames. There you go. That's There's, right. You you know you 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 drop that money once and then uh, you don't have to you, you don't have to spend again. That's it. Exactly right. right. That's anyway, a lesson that, we can me. all learn. My, my domestic uh, trivia all done and dusted. Excellent. So a hundred steps from where you were staying to the pub—that's like staggering distance, right? Uh, absolutely, and it's Crawling. much easier coming home because it's all downhill. <laughs> <laughs> really, it's yes. literally a literally. pub crawl. Oh, Perfect. Absolutely. Downhill. Yep. 
Yeah, absolutely, and uh, really nice staff there as well. So uh, you know, nice, nice bunch of people. Hmm. That little island that you um, were, were you were you mentioning that in uh, your discussion about the castle and all that kind of stuff? That island that you have a pic- yeah. in the picture. Um, ah, that that's a slightly different Gull island. Rock. The island that's just off the cove was mm-hmm. called Gull Rock. Okay, Gull Rock. Uh, do, do people actually go out there? Named? No, no. Uh, they're, they're, no, it's quite looked quite a way out, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, I'm not a boating person. I'm a flying person. Ah, okay. Well, I'm I just took pictures of it there. Yeah, it looked like a no. very cool. Got some nice pictures island. of the dogs. It was a it's very pretty spot actually. Very yeah. pretty spot. Beach was great. Uh, but trouble was, you know, that we had a huge moon. Uh, oh. <laughs> going back to our pilot okay. friend in the southwest, <laughs> we've <laughs> we had a huge had, moon yeah, recently. A huge moon, moon as well. <laughs> um, this is this is this is terrible. Um, the, the, a big moon. Mm-hmm. Means the uh, tide, of course, is very high. Mm-hmm. So uh, all that time we were having that super moon, mm-hmm. um, the sea wasn't receding very much. So we didn't see a lot of the beach until quite late on in the yeah. week when uh, the gravity uh, from the moon uh, allowed the sea to uh, to uh, you know go out properly. Mm. Yeah, I saw the I saw the uh, the the what was it the blood moon I think it was and they had a, yeah there's uh, some great pictures it was an, uh, it was an, oh yeah yeah we saw it yeah, in, I've uh, got a I've got an old Australian F18 mate who lives in the states now and married a lovely uh, American lady took the most fabulous nighttime picture of a mountain with this moon looking like a big beach ball coming down oh, this wow. mountain it, looked, it did look superb uh, gorgeous. We do have yeah, some feedback uh, regarding that super blood moon, and hopefully we'll be able to get to that today. Uh, okay. Liz, if you'll make sure that we kind of move that to a position where we mm-hmm. definitely cover it, that'd be great. I will. All right. Thank you. Okay. Sounds good. I guess now we can uh, talk a little bit about the coffee fund, unless you guys have anything else to add. Okay. Here we go. No, sir. Dun, dun, dun. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. Why not? I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Probably you might be able to hear Liz singing in the background as well. All right, the Coffee Fund is our way, or your way actually, to support the show financially if you have the financial resources to do it. And we don't mention this every single time, but let's make sure that we have you all understand that if you have use for your money in other areas like food, shelter, clothing, flying lessons, something like that, don't send any money to us. But if you don't have any of those things and you have a little extra cash to, uh, to donate, then just send your cash to the coffee fund and there are a couple of different ways to do that one it's called the coffee fund classic method and uh, there you can send a one-time donation or a recurring donation as alistair does every month alistair care uh thank you very much for um being part of our coffee fund cadre sir and uh, the other way to do it is patreon and uh, since the last episode which was only a few days ago to be fair 
no new patrons at Patreon. So check out the coffee fund on airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. Captain, incoming message. They're uh, they're doing the uh, they're doing the. I'm uh, sorry, I can't hear you. What are you saying? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so apparently, you uh, you have a lawn indoors as well. <laughs> apparently, sounds like it. <laughs> or is it your Roomba? <laughs> it's kind of loud. It's one of the it's one of the knockoffs. It makes a lot of noise. Jeff's Roomba is a, it's got a two stroke engine. All wheel drive. A lot of a lot I of gas it. fumes and stuff. But you know, yeah, yeah. that's a great job. Gets ra- gets round quick though. You don't want to be in the same room oh. when it's running. <laughs> I love it. Oh, man, it's so much fun. I'm just going to wait a little bit longer. It usually doesn't take him too long to do the back here, this area. You've got a gun there, haven't you, Jeff? <laughs> well, just, yeah, that's a little messy. Just go out there and say, get off my land. <laughs> that wouldn't be very nice. He goes, wait a minute, you're paying me to do this. Oh, yeah. Plus, you need a proper rocking chair and a jar of sweet tea to do that. And that's ah, true. Have either right now? So nope, I don't. Oh, do you remember the story we told of that old lady who shot the drone down with her yeah, shotgun? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was, was great. That. I thought it was so Granny funny. What'd you say, oh, Elizabeth? Yeah. Granny got a gun. Granny got a gun. <laughs> this was a younger <laughs> woman, I think, uh, that went out and just got tired of the drone flying around the property and shot it down. Get her down. Here we go. Ihall suggesting yeah. something here for you, Jeff. Ihall is suggesting work. something for me. Uh, record. Oh, there you go. Put the mic outside. There record the blower and turn it into the antiphase of the sound, and you can cancel it out. Oh yeah. Okay. That's that'll be easy to do. Sure. <laughs> Let me do that. <laughs> Good suggestion. Give me a couple of hours. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff Feldman yeah, says new, new audio, audio for, new audio for drone. <laughs> I like it. Oh man, can't hear it now. Yeah, well, I uh, that's they're they're playing a trick. I think he's going okay. I'm going to oh, turn it just, off, okay. and then I'm going to turn it back on again when he when they start the show. How do they know? I don't know, but they do. All right. Well, okay. I'm adjusting the time. Wait a minute. What is this malarkey? Liz, good to have an adult on board. Uh, another Canadian yeah. loves me. Too bad we don't have any adults in the chat room. <laughs> Burn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cut that. And by the way, who let the Canadian in the chat room? Huh? Yeah. Come on. The where Canadian are the, did. Where are the monitors? <laughs> the, the moderators. I think you'll find she's probably chief moderator. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'm going to assume that they are all finished with the um, with the power blower in the back. We'll see. Okay. Let's start off the feedback with this from Lyle. He says, uh, I'm a really big fan of the show. I had a question about regional airlines right now. 
I sometimes get a little bit nervous flying on the regionals just because I know they don't have as much training and I irrationally don't feel as safe. I know it's fine to fly them, but I just prefer the peace of mind that the main airlines give me. I'm near San Francisco, and it seems recently almost every flight under four hours around me is a regional flight. Almost all Alaska and Delta and American Airlines are flown by Horizon Air or SkyWest now. Is this a temporary thing, or is this how it will always be from now on? Thank you so much. Again, from Lyle. Hey, Lyle. Glad to hear from you. Um, and you even say, uh, you know, in that first paragraph, in fact, the first sentence, that you it's irrationally feeling unsafe. Um, but I can kind of understand the concern because, uh, you know, you're wondering what kind of uh, uh, training. Uh, I don't think you should be too concerned about them not having training. Um, it's more about experience, I think. And, but we all start at a certain point where we don't have any of that and we have to build it up over time. And, um, you know, if back when Rick and Captain Nick and Captain Jeff were inexperienced pilots, um, we were safe back then and we continue to be because we're still alive. (laughs) So speak speak for yourself. Well, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Forget about the Captain Nick part of it. Uh, it's just sheer <laughs> but, luck. But I got through my unsafe period in the military. So yeah, the only person too. I was a danger to was my navigator, and he had an ejector seat. <laughs> yes, good point. Good backup plan. Um, yeah, but uh, you know what? What would you say to this, Rick? Uh, uh, I agree with you. I mean, no one, no one is, no one is born with the experience, the training you can get. Uh, training is very, very standardized. You know, whether you know, it really doesn't matter what airline you fly for. Um, the hour minimums required to occupy that seat uh, are the same industry wide. Uh, after Colgan Air, uh, standard, the the hourly requirements went way up. Um, but then again, as, as, as Captain Jeff said, that, uh, that experience part of it is something that you, uh, acquire along the way. And that's something that can't be taught. That's something that you have to gather and experience on your own. Um, I, uh, I think that, uh, as you, as, as you mentioned in your, in your own email, I think it's, it's that, uh, that fear is just not, it's not something that you should, um, you know, worry too much about. And, and again, I see how you, you, you would feel that way, but, uh, just feel, feel, uh, just know that, um, the people up there have their families and have their loved ones and they want to go home too. And as long as they get home safe, you will as well. And that's, uh, as, as an airline pilot, that's, that's, uh, you know, for, for many of us, that's our priority to you know, get, get back home safe to our families in our daily lives. And so as, as long as we do, you will as well. So, uh, you're in good hands. You really are. What would you say, Captain Nick? I know that the skies are a lot safer now that you've uh, retired. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now the, what I'm going to say is that, um, long haul pilots are definitely not necessarily the safest. If you think about it, a uh, long-haul guy will spend hours and hours and hours with the autopilot in watching his airplane drill a hole through the sky. He'll get perhaps uh, three landings a month 
uh, perhaps four, and he wants to share those between himself and his first officer. So he might be, uh, the captain might be doing um, two landings a month, three landings a month, if, uh, if he's reasonably lucky. Um, so his handling experience is actually relatively low. He might have hours of, of you know, in his logbook, drilling around the world, popping around the world, but uh, the regional pilot who's handling his aircraft, multiple sectors every day, working a lot of hours and building up that experience is probably a lot more current in handling his aeroplane than a long-haul pilot. Um, so you're not necessarily going to be safe in a big aeroplane with a guy who's got a grey beard uh, because if he's been doing that long-haul job for, for many years, chances are his flying skills will probably have, over the years, gently deteriorated. He was probably, as was said to me, when I first joined my only airline, and it was a long-haul airline, and all we ever did was, Nick, you're probably the best pilot you're going to be when you walk in the door. We can teach you, uh, you know, how to operate the airplane, uh, in this job but when it comes to handling skills you're probably a peak now and uh, because we can't improve on your handling skills we just don't have the opportunity in this type of flying to do that so my advice would be uh, enjoy your experience in the regional airlines your pilots are uh, at their peak probably they're young they're keen they've got great reflexes uh, they're um, really enjoying their job but they're not some tired old captain who probably physically only has a few hours handling practice in the last year or two um so yeah uh, we'll look at it that's that true way. that's true and then that you mentioned that a lot of these a lot of these regional regional type jets um don't have the level of automation that these uh, bigger airliners have which means that there's a lot more hands-on required to get you from point a to point b and so that uh, that ties in with that uh, currency uh, factor that Captain Nick here is talking about, and I agree with that absolutely. But that's only one component, I would say, uh, in airmanship is you know uh, having good manual handling flying skills. The other is judgment, and oh yeah, judgment is something that you may be born with. Uh, so those young pilots out there flying for the regionals may you know have some really good judgment. It's just that experience component is what is usually lacking there. But if you can, you know, if you have good judgment and you have good handling skills, uh, you know, that's, that's a, that goes a long way toward uh, safe operation. And, you know, uh, the other thing to take away is that last month in May, I, every single trip that I flew the first day of the trip, we'd go up to Philadelphia and back, and then we get on a, a CRJ um, piloted by Endeavor air and fly from Atlanta to Oklahoma city. And I never once ever think anything other than this is going to be a safe flight. Uh, if I didn't, then I wouldn't get on the airplane. Of course, then I'd probably have trouble uh, getting paid for my trip if I did that. But um, I, I don't, I don't ever feel like I'm getting on an airplane where my safety is compromised at all. And this is an experienced airline pilot doing this. Uh, and, and Rick, uh, he commutes, uh, every every trip, right, Rick? Probably yep, seven, maybe several a, times uh, during a trip. Yeah, every trip is on a uh, on a Skywest uh, CRJ seven hundred or nine hundred. Mm -hmm. So uh, those are regional pilots, and uh, yeah, 
and you and you'll have i mean and don't i mean don't 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 let the you know the 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 regional you know stigma get a hold of you there 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 are there are very you know seasoned and uh and gray beard regional yep. airline pilots as well or so gray mustachioed yeah gray exactly like so it's not just a, it's not just a uh, <laughs> it's not just a uh, a a flying gig for the youngins it's uh there's all sorts of um all, all along the age spectrum there it's not really um so you get you get all sorts of all sorts of folks there. So now one of the things that may be uh, concerning Lyle are news reports such as this one that I've included in this feedback um, from uh, let's see CBSLocal.com and also uh, CNN um, out of Fort Worth. Multiple alleged pilot errors are included in a Federal Aviation Administration warning to Envoy Air, the largest regional carrier for Fort Worth-based American Airlines. One of the close calls detailed how a commuter jet was seconds away from landing at a regional airport in, in Illinois last March. When the pilots realized that they'd made a potentially fatal mistake, they were aimed at the wrong runway. Okay, well, as we know, if you've been listening to any of our episodes, uh, we've had several instances, incidents uh, that we've reported on on our show where um, mainline <laughs> carriers have landed at the wrong airport or on the wrong runway. So it's not just, you know, do, um, limited to uh, regional airlines for this sort of thing to happen. Um, but anyway, it, it talks about there were several things that were reported and uh, the FAA was um, kind of uh, saying that they're taking a look at uh, some of these alleged safety uh, incidents at uh, Envoy Airlines and they're taking... Um, Let's see, uh, they're examining the root cause of each potential issue, and uh, they're going to take any necessary corrective actions if needed. And uh, that was the company uh, telling CNN that they're working with the FAA and the pilot union to uh, to do something about this. But uh, I don't know. That doesn't help, you know, when you have uh, the, these kind of issues kind of poke up into the media and uh, get your attention, especially if you have a little anxiety about flying to begin with, or especially anxiety about flying the regionals. I'll tell you one yeah. thing though. I mean, when I, uh, when I heard the, I don't know if you guys heard it, the, uh, the, the audio, uh, that, uh, ATC audio out of Cincinnati uh, a couple weeks ago, it was, um, uh, the, the ground controller taxied a Delta seven, three, I think it was under the same taxiway as, yeah. um, I think it was a, some kind of ERJ. And then mm-hmm. the, they kind of had a bit of a standoff there. No, nobody could turn um, or or make their 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 way uh, to to clear the taxiway out, and so the 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 commuter guy said uh, that we they may be able to use the reversers to get out of the way. And I kind of <laughs> had to quick my eyebrow there a little bit. I was like, oh. I did too. I'm thinking, oh really? Like, Are you gonna? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, actually, they must have had some kind of a discussion, inter cockpit discussion, saying, "Hey, dude." Yeah, we're not allowed to do that. Yes. And uh, let's exactly. tell them we can't do that. And we can't make the turn. Yeah. Turns out they had to actually get a tug out to uh, yeah. push back one of the airplanes so they could. Uh, and yeah, the, as you mentioned, um, uh, the uh, I watched that video as well. I think it was a vast aviation video mm-hmm. uh, where they were um, going over this, this situation. I guess earlier um, ground control had given clearance for the uh, regional jet to taxi out to the same runway that uh, the Delta jet was landing on. And uh, the Delta jet, I think may have taken um, a high speed taxiway a little earlier than the 
they were expecting. And when they did mm. that, that's when <laughs> the problem came where, you yeah, know, the a wrench in the, yeah. Yeah. Put a big wrench into the system where, uh, by the time, uh, both pilots realized that this was going to be a situation, they had already passed the point at which they could turn to a, to kind of straighten or fix the whole situation. So, yeah, I, I can't, uh, I would imagine that the PAs, um, that these uh, pilots were giving their passengers may have been quite interesting to to hear. Yeah, we're going to have to, we're going to be a little delayed because we can't move the airplane and we're going to have to wait for a tug to come out and move us. Yeah. Not good. It happens. Yeah, Yeah. it happens. Okay. Um, So Lyle, hope that helps. Um, We're, we're good with uh, flying on the regionals and you should be too. That's our, Stands. And I and I, I haven't put you off flying with the main line now. <laughs> yeah, don't. Yeah, stay away from the long haul carriers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Safe. They're dangerous, man. <laughs> Awful. All right, uh, let's continue. Oh, we have some audio feedback from uh, one of our community members that we hear from uh, time to time. Uh, he lives in Columbia, Missouri, I believe, and not too far from Kansas City. I've met up with uh, Tom. Uh, several times. I think Nick has as well in uh, Kansas City. Great barbecue. Oh, yeah. Well, he says, Hi, Captain Jeff. Uh, I hope you're doing well. I feel compelled to send you this feedback again. I originally sent this in February of 2018, and you played it in episode 310. Where has three years gone? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, With Father's Day coming up soon, I thought it may be a good time to share it again. It's long, and I apologize for that, but just a few days ago, a friend of mine shared this with their family. They listened to it from its original episode, and two of his siblings decided together that they needed to call their dad. I also got a Facebook message from an APG listener several months ago. He told me this his story was similar to mine, and he decided to call his dad. Every Father's Day is hard because dad is gone. But I'm glad it's hard, because if it wasn't, then there wouldn't be as much appreciation of the building back of the relationship with my dad. It was all worth it. I was thinking that maybe someone needs to hear this again. Anyway, don't feel bad if if you can't play it. Oh, we are going to play it. No hard feelings here. Okay. Yeah, we're, well, don't worry about it, Tom. We're going to play it again. And uh, he signs off by saying, again, as always, thanks for what you do. Please keep it up. And again, that's Tom Seagraves. And so here we go. Without further ado, we're going to play this feedback. Hi, my name is Tom, and I'm an AV geek. It's a label I wear proudly. Sometimes when I'm listening to the APG podcast, I feel like this is how we all need to start our feedback. Captain Jeff, you may consider changing the name of the podcast to AV Geeks Anonymous. If anyone listening is like me, this podcast is kind of an addiction. A good one, of course, and it does as much for your mental health as it does to scratch your aviation geek itch. Anyway, people that know me know that if the conversation ever turns to airplanes, I'm going to chime in. My wife knows when we fly somewhere, I'm going to stop and say hi to the pilots. And I know that when the new weekly episode of the APG podcast is available, I'm going to download it for immediate listening. Like many of you, being an AV geek is something that you've had to deal with almost your entire life. As a matter of fact, for me, I remember the day it all began. It was a summer day in 1973. 
but I'll get back to that day in a minute. If I were to sit down and have a conversation with any of you, I think most everyone could say that somehow your family growing up was dysfunctional, and mine was no exception. I grew up with a dad that at times was hard to get along with. And like most of you, I could talk about bad memories and things that happened that would probably make some people go sit on a couch somewhere and pay a professional good money to talk about these things. Now, there's nothing wrong with therapy if that's what you choose to do, but it wasn't the path of healing that I chose. You see, when I was 19, I had a choice to make. Was I going to have a relationship with my dad as an adult? As I thought about this decision, my mind went back to that summer day in 1973. I was five years old and we lived in Los Angeles. My dad drove a bus for the city of Santa Monica. He worked hard and with my mom, they had five kids. At this time in 1973, his youngest was one and his oldest was 13. I was the second youngest at five. About once a month or so, dad would go flying with the guy he worked with at the bus company. My dad became a private pilot in the late 1940s when he was a teenager. He worked at the Santa Monica Airport, washing and waxing planes, and that's how he paid for his flight lessons. In the 50s, he went on to become a pretty good pilot. He even did some aerobatic displays in a Cetabria on the local airshow circuit for a few years. He even said learning aerobatics once saved his life. One time in a Cessna 150, he got in trouble and somehow he ended up in a flat spin. He swore he would have died that day, but his aerobatic training got him out of the flat spin at 1,300 feet above a Southern California orange grove. I sure wish I'd recorded that story with him, but the aerobatics ended when he married my mom in 1958, and they started a family, but he still flew recreationally for several years. So, back to that summer day in 1973. It was a Saturday morning, and my dad was going flying with his friend from work. My older brother went with them most of the time, but on this day, dad pulled me aside and asked if going flying was something I'd like to do. I said, yes, of course. So we drove to the Van Nuys Airport, where we met his friend. I vividly remember looking out through the glass door at the FBO at Van Nuys, and my dad pointing out to that white Cessna 172 with the mustard yellow stripe down its side. We finally walked out to the plane, and I climbed into the back seat. I still remember fastening that seat belt, and then later, as we rolled down the runway, I had my forehead pressed up against the glass, looking out the right side window down at the wheel. I remember the moment it broke contact with the ground, and I realized we were flying. I remember so much about that day. I remember the airports we visited, Chino, Fullerton, Santa Paula. I remember eating a BLT sandwich with potato chips at a coffee shop at one of those airports. I remember standing in the open bomb bay of a B-17 while we were at Chino. I remember sitting in the right seat of that Cessna 172 while while Dad was in the left seat, and he let me take control for a few minutes. I didn't do much, but I remember feeling the weight of the controls in my hands and thinking my dad was something special because he knew how to fly an airplane. And I remember him flying me over that Queen Mary in Long Beach. So when I was 19 and I was trying to decide whether or not I should have a relationship with my dad, this first flight with him is what I thought of. 
I called him and told him I had a million reasons to never speak to him again. But I had a million reasons to talk to him. I asked him if he remembered that Saturday in 1973. He said he did, and we talked about it. I told him that down the road, when things get messy, we would always go back to aviation. It was kind of a reset button for us. I was an av geek because of him. And even though we moved from California to Missouri in 1978, and he never flew again as a pilot, we always had our love of aviation in common. I'll never forget visiting Boeing with him in Seattle in the early 90s. He loved Boeing. Sorry, Captain Nick. I remember the first time he flew on an Airbus. It was an A320, and he said the only thing he liked about it was the seat was more comfortable. But for him, that wasn't enough of a reason to switch his Boeing allegiance. Also in the early 90s, we would spend hours talking about the 777 during its development. He would read anything he could get his hands on, and then he'd call me to tell me what he found. And then there was that day in 1997 when he got to fly that Cessna bird dog. What a day that was. Now, I hadn't thought about this day for a long time. But back on November 5th of 2016, Captain Nick shared a story with us on APG during his Plain Tales episode. He called it Flight and a Bird Dog. This Plain Tales from APG episode 244 was the story of Major Bung Lee of the South Vietnamese Army escaping with his family and a Cessna bird dog. Major Lee, his wife, and their five children got into a bird dog and flew out over the ocean in an attempt to escape Saigon as it fell. He just so happened to find a U.S. aircraft carrier, and he safely landed on its deck. I won't try to retell the story here, but if you haven't heard it, I promise it's worth your time. What you need to know, though, is that Major Lee, his wife, and his five kids had crammed themselves into a two-seat airplane. Yeah, seven people in a two-seat airplane, and they flew out over the ocean, hoping to find an American ship. Can you imagine? Okay, so what does this have to do with me and my dad? I promise I'm going to pull all this together. When I heard this Plain Tales episode from Captain Nick, it reminded me of my dad flying the bird dog. You see, I moved to Virginia in the early 90s, and a guy I worked with introduced me to another guy that owned a small airport near where I lived. This guy's name was Rucker Tibbs. This man alone could be a topic for Captain Nick's Plain Tales for at least two episodes and probably many more. But Rucker owned a bird dog. I got the pleasure of going for a ride with Rucker and his bird dog. If Rucker was still with us, he would definitely be known on this show as the original old curmudgeon. He had a rough exterior, but he was a great man with a heart of gold. As I was flying with Rucker that day and his bird dog and we were coming in to land, I noticed he didn't have any flaps down. I asked him if he was going to put any flaps down. His response was, I don't need no damn flaps. That should give you an idea of the kind of guy he was. Anyway, after our flight, I told Rucker that my dad would love to come visit him the next time he was in town. I told him dad was an old pilot that hadn't flown for almost 20 years, but he was an old tail dragger pilot that would get a kick out of visiting with Rucker. He told me to bring him out. So sometime in the next couple of years, dad did come for a visit. I took him out to visit Rucker, and the hangar flying began. They were two peas in a pod. Oh, how I wish I would have had a video camera that day. My dad was in heaven. After a couple of hours of talking about flying, 
Rucker pointed out at his bird dog and said, let's go. My dad lit up like a kid at Christmas. He climbed in the back seat, got some instruction from Rucker on where everything was, and off they went. They must have been gone for two hours. When they got back, all I could see was my dad smiling in the back seat. He said he took control right after takeoff and flew the whole time they were up. Rucker tried to get dad to land, but dad said since he couldn't see very well from the back seat, he didn't feel like it was safe, so he gave control back to Rucker. It was a day my dad never forgot, and I haven't either. Captain Nick, when you shared that Plain Tales episode with us, it brought back the state of the forefront of my mind. Because of that day, when Dad flew that bird dog, I somehow felt a connection with Major Lee. For Major Lee, that bird dog meant safety and life for his family. For me, that bird dog of Rutgers that my dad and I both got to fly in, it was safety for us. Aviation for me and Dad was a piece of safe, neutral ground. It is what allowed us to build back a father-son relationship. At times, it's all we had, but it was enough. The bird dog was one of the milestones along the way that we came across. To some people, it may not have meant much, but to us, it was safety and life. It got our blood flowing, and the conversation started. When I heard your story, Captain Nick, I really wanted to call my dad and tell him about it. Well, a few years ago, I was in Pensacola, and I went to the Naval Aviation Museum, and I got to see Major Lee's bird dog. It was hanging from the ceiling. I stood there on the floor, surrounded by all kinds of historical military airplanes, but it was that tiny bird dog that had my attention. Thoughts of Major Lee escaping with his family, Rucker taking me flying, and my dad flying in a bird dog after almost 20 years of not flying, all flooded through my mind. So many good memories made me smile. So many great memories all pulled together because of Captain Nick's Plain Tales episode. So, is it a stretch to tie together a South Vietnamese major with my first flight in 1973 to my dad learning to be a pilot in the 1940s, to an old curmudgeon in Virginia, to me deciding when I was 19 to salvage a damaged relationship with my dad? The answer is, you bet it is a stretch, but I don't care. I lost my dad several years ago, and yes, I can look back and think of bad and damaging things that happened between us when I was a kid, but why should I? I decided when I was 19 to not focus on those things, so I don't. I focus on things that we had in common and things that we both loved. And on the top of that list was aviation. So why do I listen to APG? Because I'm an av geek. And because of the people I get to hear every week. And because of the memories it stirs up. And because if my dad was still here, we would be listening together. And I know for sure he would be suffering from the APG syndrome just like I do. So thanks, Captain Jeff, and Captain Nick, and Dr. Steph, and Dana, and Miami Rick, and of course, you, Liz, and everyone else that is part of this big family. Thanks to all of you. And let me encourage you, if you happen to have a damaged relationship with someone you should be close to, fix it, and fix it now. Think of something you have in common and start from there. I promise, 30 years from now... You'll be glad you did. Thanks, Tom. But what a lovely piece, and so well-spoken. 
and oh, yeah. so well thought out as well. Uh, and yeah, and I love hearing that. I remember the first time, and uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's a great piece to play. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I think it's uh, a marvelous relationship to have. Uh, I was lucky. Um, my dad, although he was very remote from me because we lived in different parts of the world for most of uh, my life, um, we could get together often enough. And uh, when we did, it was a joyous reunion. Yeah. I agree. Beautiful, beautiful piece. Thank you, Tom. That was great. Yeah, thanks, Tom. And it's, it's so appropriate because uh, June is the month of the year that uh, I think all of us around the world celebrate Father's Day. Uh, for us, it's going to be in a few more weeks, but uh, a great uh, a great one to uh, to play during the month of June. And as you said, great advice. You know, if you have a messed up relationship, try to fix it and try to come up with something that. Uh, you have in common and uh, let it grow and get fixed and healed from there. Repair. And, and Jeff, APG yeah. 244 was that plain tale. That oh, he okay. To. Um, Liz is telling us that APG 244 was that plain tale. Flight in a bird dog. Uh, flight in a bird dog. One of my favorite stories, I you know, I haven't been able to find one to match it, quite honestly, when it comes to um, a, a beautiful story um, intermingling great heroism and uh, a marvelous sense of duty from the uh, commanding officer of that uh, aircraft carrier that allowed um, uh, Major Bung Lee to land his bird dog uh, and... Uh, you know, it, it, if you haven't heard the story, I don't know of it. Please go back and listen to it. Not just because I want you to listen to Plain Tales, because it's it really is a um, um, an uplifting story. That one it is, and I'll put a uh, link to directly to that Plain Tale because uh, it's a separate uh, podcast or a separate page on our website where you can uh, find out more information about uh, every installment of the plane tales that the uh, old pilot puts out there. So um, again, right now, if you're listening to the audio only, you're probably looking at that link or uh, something to kind of steer you in the right direction. So there we go. Thanks again, Tom. All right, let's move on to this next one from uh, a couple of you sent this in Albert and Chris. Uh, a link to an article uh, from the uh, ATSB.gov.au, so the uh, Transportation Safety Board um, Investigatory uh, Authority over in Australia regarding something that occurred not too long ago, if I'm correct. Uh, let's see, this is from, uh, I'll read Albert's email to us. Good evening from a rather cold Australia. Just came across this report. I thought it might prove to be an interesting topic of discussion. Uh, in summary, a pilot fell asleep from a combination of mild hypoxia and fatigue and was unable to be aroused for 40 minutes, including over the radio and by another plane, purposely triggering the TCAS in the caravan. The caravan was flying at 11,000 feet and the pilot was using supplemental oxygen. Dr. Steph might be able to comment on flying at these altitudes in unpressurized aircraft and how hypoxia can still happen even 
while on supplemental oxygen. Well, she can't because she's not here today <laughs> with us. But uh, <laughs> well, and uh, it's, he, he should have carried a laptop if he wasn't aroused. And uh, I, think he, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking the same thing when I was reading that Contact sentence. I thought, right, wow, yeah, we just can't yeah. get away from it on this uh, no, on the show. It's just a common theme, I guess. Yeah. Also, I had never heard of pilots um, actually flying on supplemental oxygen in unpressurized aircraft, and I'd be interested in any opinions you might all have particularly Dr. Steph and her medical and GA background and those of you who flew military aircraft. Keep the blue side up and the brown away from the seat of your pants. <laughs> Thank you, Albert. That's good advice. Um, and the, the article to which Albert and Chris were referring uh, talks about, well, the headline is Pilot Uncontactable for 40 Minutes Fell Asleep Due to Fatigue Exacerbated by Mild hypoxia and uh let's see a pilot who overflew their destination and was unresponsive to air traffic control calls for 40 minutes had fallen asleep uh, as we just mentioned due to fatigue and uh mild hypoxia uh from the intermittent use of supplemental oxygen a new atsb investigation is found the pilot was conducting a ferry flight of a cessna 208b caravan from Cairns, Queensland to Redcliffe on the afternoon of 2 July 2020, so not quite a year ago. While cruising at 10,000 feet, the pilot encountered unforecast icing conditions and poor visibility due to cloud and climbed to 11,000 feet and began to use the aircraft supplemental oxygen system intermittently. And then it puts in parentheses here. Pilots are required to continuously use supplemental oxygen when flying unpressurized aircraft, such as the caravan, when flying above 10,000 feet. So they were just just above uh, 10,000 feet. When the aircraft was about 53 kilometers west-northwest of Sunshine Coast Airport, air traffic control unsuccessfully attempted to contact the pilot regarding their planned descent into Redcliffe. Following repeated calls to the pilot, I remember now um, we uh, we talked we covered this story. I think, um, yeah, last yeah, year. I think it actually occurred about a year ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, July of last year. Um, following repeated calls to the pilot, ATC enlisted the assistance of, assistance of pilots and nearby aircraft to contact the caravan pilot. It was seen to overfly Redcliffe and track towards Brisbane. I think we actually had some audio from that too, if I if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, the pilot of a Royal Flying Doctor Service Beechcraft B-200 King Air aircraft departing Brisbane was asked by ATC to intercept and contact the caravan pilot, but their initial efforts were unsuccessful. The King Air pilot then dipped their wings and approached the Cessna in an attempt to trigger its TCAS, uh, but the pilot remained unresponsive. And then about 40 minutes without contact, when the aircraft was about 111 kilometers south-southeast of the intended destination, the pilot woke up and ATC communications were reestablished. The pilot was, was then instructed to land at Gold Coast Airport, where the aircraft landed safely just after 6 p.m. The ATSB found that the pilot was likely experiencing a level of fatigue due to inadequate sleep the night before and leading up to the accident. Uh, further, operating at 11,000 feet with intermittent use of supplemental oxygen likely resulted in the pilot experiencing mild hypoxia. Uh, this was likely exacerbated by the pilot's existing fatigue and contributed to the pilot falling asleep. Okay, so although a common symptom of hypoxia is loss of consciousness, it's not typical for someone experiencing hypoxia to regain consciousness. 
while still operating at the same altitude and without additional oxygen, according to uh, Ms. Hughes, one of the uh, ATSB investigators. Therefore, from the information obtained by a medical specialist engaged by the ATSB and from studies conducted on mild hypoxia at moderate altitudes, the ATSB determined that it was unlikely that the pilot had lost consciousness solely due to mild hypoxia. Rather, the pilot had fallen asleep, likely due to the combination, which we've mentioned several times now. Um, yeah. Um, happy ending. Oh. Regained consciousness. Was able to land. Didn't run out of fuel. Didn't crash yeah, into the Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah. I'm glad you had the fuel for that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, there we go. That's why we, that's why we carry reserve fuel, just in case we lose consciousness. That's right. <laughs> so you should I be. I wonder why we needed that extra. You should feel safe. Extra now. ton. Yeah. It, it reminded me of that. Uh, remember that Northwest uh, 320, I think it was. Uh, it flew past Minneapolis for, by, I think it was 40 minutes or something. And yeah, in that case, been, uh, they didn't lose consciousness. <laughs> no, they were. Uh, no, not at all. Uh, someone set, up, set up out over the Pacific, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Uh, overflying LA. Yes. And got. Quite a distance away before they woke up. Yeah, I think it was Turned United 707 or something. Yeah. yeah, and they just barely. They about. were on fumes when they when they got back to LAX. Yeah. I think. Yeah, that's scary. Yeah. I know it's happened. Yep. So, uh, sadly, uh, because Doctor Steph's not with us, perhaps we should have moved that and saved it. But um, anyway, uh, she would probably tell us that. Well, I don't know what she'd say, actually. But I have experience with uh, flying unpressurized aircraft, uh, but in, it was in the military, the T-37, and we had face masks, and we wore them for the entire flight. And so we had oxygen continuously available uh, demand system uh, for us. So, uh, yeah, you know, when you're – especially when you get up – I think the service ceiling on the airplane was like 25,000 feet, maybe a little bit higher. Uh, but we'd, you know – typically go up to around 25,000 feet or so when we were doing a ride where we were um, practicing spins and spin recoveries, you know, because you lose a lot of altitude when you, in that kind of an airplane, when you do those spins and uh, yeah, definitely uh, would be an emergency situation if you lost your oxygen supply because uh, you know, hypoxia kicks in pretty quickly when you're up in the, in the 20,000 and 30,000 foot range but uh just at eleven thousand feet i'm kind of surprised as i said they don't yeah. believe that that was something that would happen to your normal pilot so there was obviously something else involved in this no i think uh, he finally fell asleep but the reason he fell asleep might well have been exacerbated by uh the his low oxygen levels as well as it says here dehydration and possibly diet and mm-hmm. Bad sleep the night before, no. all, all the combination of uh, effects. But uh, I, I had a hypoxia event uh, in an F-18. Mm. And so, you know, I, I thank my lucky stars that in the military we received um, pretty uh, extensive hypoxia training on a regular basis because uh, if you do become hypoxic, you lose your short-term memory. So it's very important that you can fall back on your long-term memory that remains. And if you've done regular training, that um, memory of what the symptoms are and what the recovery 
procedures are will eventually be moved from short-term into long-term memory and you're much more likely to recognize what's happening and recall it. So um, that's one of the reasons why we used to have regular visits to uh, our aeromedical facilities and undergo depressurization and hypoxia training in um, hypoxia in pressurized chambers or mm. depressurized chambers actually no, not pressurized yeah. ones and uh, just for fun they used to explosively decompress us from uh, 25,000 feet up to 40,000 feet in I think about three seconds uh, which, that was fun that's yeah. quick uh, and I tell you what um, you fart a lot well imagine. thank you <laughs> Boyle's <laughs> law yeah exactly now we used to we used to fly into uh we used to fly into la paz in bolivia quite regularly that's thirteen thousand feet up and that's um oh yeah uh we uh you know you need a, you need oxygen for that you know we, it was it was just sop putting on your your oxygen mask prior to prior to beginning the descent because you have to keep in mind that and it's interesting you know having having flown in south america for many many years a lot of these airports uh actually sit higher than your uh, cabin altitude during the flight. And so there's a really interesting procedure where you would, uh, say, for example, landing in, I don't know, La Paz or Quito, one of those, uh, usually I mean, when you're in the, in, the mid, in the mid-30s, which is your, your standard you know, airline or uh, cruise altitude, your, your cabin sits at around eh, 6,000 to 7,000 feet. And a lot of these airports are, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13,000 feet in, in the case of La Paz. And so what we used to do is, you would set the cabin altitude controller um, to 6,000 feet. And then uh, prior to beginning the, uh, the, the descent into the, you know, the, the physical descent of the airplane into the, into the airfield, we would set the cabin altitude to the uh, destination airport altitude. And while the airplane descended into the airport, the cabin actually climbed to meet the airplane at the destination airport's altitude, and uh, it was it was it was quite interesting because it was um, flying into La Paz. You had to be you couldn't take just any airplane because um, with the system on a lot of these airplanes. Once you get past a certain altitude, I believe it's uh, it depends on the airplane, but generally around eleven thousand feet, there's a micro switch that will release the uh, the rubber jungle in the back you know all the all the um, yeah the, the oxygen generators yeah I was just gonna ask how you avoided that mm -hmm, exactly not only that but there's also a micro switch that will uh, shut the uh, outflow valve to prevent any 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 uh, loss of that uh, that cabin pressurized air that's keeping the uh, the cabin at a at a uh, you know acceptable level and so that was that was quite the interesting operation, uh, but I agree with with you, Nick. There, then, when you say that, uh, um, yeah, the, the the fellow must have been. Oh, was it was it you or maybe it was? Uh, oh no, it was uh, I haul boxes. He was saying that perhaps he was a smoker, mm -hmm. um, and you know lifestyle choices and your 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 overall health. I imagine has some kind of a uh, effect on this because eleven thousand feet. I mean, uh, it's it's high, but it's not something that. Uh, you know, it's, you, you would have life normally have a problem thing. with. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't don't go running a marathon unless you're Steph. But um, yeah, she can do. It. You know, but uh, eleven thousand feet is not something that would uh, you know be a, a deal breaker. I guess. I, don't know, I guess in this case it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. All right.
Well, I think it's time now for the best part of the show. And everybody, come on, kids, you all know what that means. It is now time for the old pilot's plane tales, four on the floor. Now, wait a minute. That's not it. (laughs) The old pilot's plane tales, flying all the fours. Looking back on the final years of the Second World War, it's easy to forget that nobody knew quite when the conflict would end, and whilst the first and second generations of fighting aircraft were performing well against the Luftwaffe, a third generation would be needed to take on the technological advances that were being made by the German aircraft manufacturers. Pre-war biplanes had long been superseded by fighters and bombers like the Spitfire, Hurricane, BF-109, Wellington, B-17B-29, Polikarpov, I-16, Nakajima, KI-27, Mackie C-200, etc. But despite modifications and updates, by 1945 a completely new generation of aircraft was arriving. Many such aircraft were constructed and flown and were thought to be the pinnacle of fighting science and manufacturing capability at the time, but we know little of them nowadays as the war ended and they never made it into service. They were surplus to requirement. But let them not disappear completely into the dusty annals of history because had the war continued for a year or two, they would have been the poster children, the celebrated war-winning machines that we all remembered, and their names would be famous. Let's start with the Republic XF-12 Rainbow. An odd name for a military fighting aircraft, but I'm sure, had it come into service, the Army Air Corps would have renamed it something like the Flashy Fortress. Republic were building an aircraft to fly all the fours. That is, have four engines, a 400 mile per hour cruise speed, a 4,000 mile range, and fly at 40,000 feet. The original proposal came from the Air Corps for a reconnaissance aircraft capable of high speed overflight of the Japanese homeland to locate key installations and to accomplish this task. The aircraft required good speed, range and altitude capabilities for its missions. The design of the Rainbow was based on a low drag coefficient and its gleaming cigar-shaped fuselage with a futuristically streamlined glazed nose achieved this. She had long slender tapered wings that sported its four tightly cowled slim Pratt & Whitney R4360 Wasp Majors, each with 28 cylinders in four air-cooled rows. The engines featured sliding cowls for the two-stage impeller fans directly behind the prop spinners rather than the usual draggy cowl flaps. Cooling air was drawn in from the leading edge of the wing in between the power plants which was extremely efficient. An excess air, along with the engine exhaust, was ducted out of the back of the nacelles to aid thrust, calculated as an additional 1,000 horsepower for the four engines. Each of these slender engines was as long as a P-47 Thunderbolt. 
Sitting on its tricycle undercarriage, the XF-12 looked like it belonged to a new generation of bomber, and indeed it did. Its first flight was made in early 1946, and in demonstrations flights, it excelled, achieving an operational ceiling of 45,000 feet, a speed of 470 miles an hour, and a range of over 4,500 miles, exceeding its goals by a significant margin. The Rainbow's reconnaissance capability was also exceptional, and it employed inwards opening bay doors to limit drag, electrically heated camera lenses to reduce distortion, and it had a complete darkroom within the airframe to allow the film to be developed during flight. For a demonstration, the Rainbow made a run from California to New York at 40,000 feet, photographing the entire width of the United States onto a 325-foot-long strip of film which recorded a 500-mile swathe of the country. The flight was featured in Life magazine and the actual film strip was put on display in New York. Sadly, the newly formed United States Air Force decided not to go ahead with the XF-12 and used the less capable B-29 as a stopgap until the Boeing B-47 Stratojet came into service. Republic tried to market a civilian version, but no orders were made. Had it been ready a few years earlier, it would undoubtedly have found an important place in the order of battle, but it remains the ultimate expression of multi-engine, piston-powered aircraft design, its high-speed, near-perfect, streamlined form, and neatly cowled engines make it a design classic, often unappreciated and not very well known, and the XF-12 was the fastest four-engine pure piston-powered aircraft of its day and the only one ever to exceed 450 miles per hour in level flight. Martin Baker, the company we now associate with their life-saving ejector seats, started life as an aircraft manufacturer, which was producing aircraft in the 1930s. Their first military design was the MB-2, a fighter designed for the tropics and powered by the Napier Dagger, but although it was capable of over 300 miles an hour, even with its fixed undercarriage, it never went into production. By 1942, the company had improved on the MB-2, and the MB-3 was designed with an amazing six Hispano 20mm cannons, making it the most heavily armed fighter in existence. It was a tail-wheeled aircraft with a fuselage profile similar to that of a Spitfire, but with more rectangular wing planforms that simplified construction and powered by a Napier Sabre. It could reach 40,000 feet and 415 miles per hour. The construction was all metal, with panels fitted around a tubular metal fuselage, and the laminated steel wing spar was extremely strong. The undercarriage and flaps were simple, sturdy, effective and reliable, being pneumatically powered. Following a successful first flight by Captain Baker, one of the company's founders, the aircraft proved to be highly manoeuvrable and easy to fly. 
But then, soon after takeoff, the MB3 suffered an engine failure, and in trying to save the aircraft, Baker made a forced landing. Sadly, he hit a tree stump and was killed. From this start, a Griffin-powered MB4 followed, and then came the MB5. Outwardly similar, the MB5 was a monster, being powered by the Rolls-Royce Griffin 83 V12 engine. It sported a huge six-bladed contra-rotating propeller, which gave it a speed of 460 miles per hour. A key feature was its simple design and easy construction, favouring straight lines and with excellent access to components thanks to a system of detachable panels. Test pilots considered its performance outstanding and the cockpit layout was praised by the Aeroplane and Armament Experimental Establishment. The famous Winkles Brown fluid and said, In my opinion, this is an outstanding aircraft, particularly when regarded in the light of the fact that it made its maiden flight as early as the 23rd of May 1944. One of the best aerobatic pilots in the UK at the time, squadron leader Janusz Zerakowski, gave a spectacular display in the MB5 at Farnborough during the air show in June 1946, an aircraft he considered superlative and better in many ways to the Spitfire he flew during the war. Sadly, slow development, due in the main to a lack of government support, prevented the aircraft from serving and this wonderful fighter was eventually parked up on a gunnery range and destroyed. Devastated by the death of his colleague, Martin went on to devise the famous aircraft escape systems that we are familiar with, but in respect for his fellow owner, he never took the name of Captain Baker from the company's letterhead. The Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation was an Australian manufacturing facility established in 1936 to give the country the ability to produce its own military aircraft and engines. Its first fighter, built for the RAAF, was the CAC Boomerang, which used a locally made Pratt & Whitney R1830 twin WASP engine. The fighter was only moderately successful, lacking the speed, barely more than 300 miles an hour, and high-altitude performance to take on Japanese Zeros. It did, however, prove to be a very useful ground-attack aircraft. As the boomerang moved towards obsolescence, the CAC was working on its replacement, the Kangaroo. Outwardly, this large, single-engine, single-pilot fighter looked a bit like a Mustang on steroids. Without access to the turbocharged Pratt & Whitney R2800 engine of choice, the Kangaroo was fitted with the Rolls-Royce Griffin, which, in production aircraft, was due to be equipped with a three-stage supercharger. Sadly, design and production was slowed by the end of the war and the prototype didn't fly until March 1946, but it apparently achieved a level flight speed of 448 miles an hour. Test flying came to an abrupt end, though, when the kangaroo had a leak and the hydraulics failed halfway through gear extension, leaving the main undercarriage only halfway down. 
on landing the kangaroo kangarooed between its tail wheel and large belly until the air scoop dug in. It finally skidded to a halt, heavily damaged but repairable, and flew again in 1948 when it exceeded 500 miles an hour after a shallow dive of 4,000 feet. However, the writing was on the wall for piston fighters as the jet age approached, and in 1954, CAC delivered its first CA-27 Sabre, built under licence but sporting a Rolls-Royce Avon, giving it twice the thrust-to-weight ratio of the original US version. I shall finish this small selection of aircraft that might have been introduced by telling you about the Horton HO-229. Unlike the four fours that this story started with, this prototype German light fighter bomber was designed to hit the three ones, as demanded by Hermann Goering. 1,000 kilos of bombs for 1,000 kilometres at 1,000 kilometres per hour. That is, 2,200 pounds for 620 miles at 620 miles per hour. The design that the Horton brothers, best known for their gliders, came up with was a jet-powered version of their pre-war series of flying-wing sailplanes. The brothers had constructed several versions of tailless gliders and then powered wings driven by a pair of Argus V8s. To go from this to a jet-powered version was quite a step, but their HO229 was exactly that. The futuristic aircraft was a swept wing with a span of nearly 17 metres, about 55 feet, which smoothly blended into the fuselage bulge. Either side of the cockpit were the round intakes designed to take two BMW 3 jet engines, which exhausted over the top of the wing, about 10 feet forward, of the nib-shaped fuselage trailing edge. Overheating of the fuselage was to be prevented by air cooling ducted from the jet's outer casing. The construction was mixed between the centre pod made from welded steel tubing and the spars made from wood. The machine was covered with plywood panels glued together with a charcoal and sawdust mix. The control surfaces were a combination of elevons and spoilers. Version 1 was an unpowered glider which flew in March 1944, but eventually crashed when the pilot tried to land without retracting a probe carrying instruments. The V-2 flew with the Junkers Jumo 4 jet engines and handled well, with only moderate lateral instability, a typical problem with tailless aircraft. The second flight included simulated combat with the new jet-powered ME-262 and showed the HO-229 to have excellent manoeuvrability. A few flights later, an engine fire destroyed the prototype, killing the pilot, who was thought to have succumbed to fumes and fallen unconscious. The final prototype, V3, was larger and more capable than the first two, but it was never completed. 
with U.S. forces advancing on one side and the Soviets on the other, the U.S. Army rushed ahead to capture as much advanced German technology as possible, and Operation Paperclip ensured that the V-3 was transported to the Royal Aircraft Establishment for evaluation. It was hoped that it might fly after retrofitting a pair of early British turbojets, since the US were still some way from building their own. Sadly, the size of the early centrifugal compressor jets was not compatible with the HO229. The performance of the V-2 was remarkable for the time, as it was capable of reaching 960 kilometers per hour, that's 600 miles an hour, for a range of 1,900 kilometers, 1,200 miles. One can only wonder at what the V-3 would have been capable of. There has been considerable discussion as to whether the HO229 might be considered the first stealth aircraft. Not only did its design resemble future stealth flying wings, but it was thought that the charcoal dust mixed in with the wood glue might have absorbed radar electromagnetic waves. Engineers from Northrop Grumman and then the Smithsonian undertook examination of the salvaged centre section of the V-3 and discovered that the aircraft would have had a smaller radar cross-section than a conventional twin-engine bomber. After an expenditure of quarter of a million dollars and two and a half thousand man-hours, it was found that a theoretical HO229 approaching the English coast at low level would have been detected by the home chain radar system at a distance only 80% that of a Messerschmitt BF-109, which implies a frontal radar cross-section of only 40% that of the 109. In addition to their work on the HO229, it was discovered that the Horton brothers were also working on the six-engined Horton HO18. An intercontinental jet bomber, it would have been capable of reaching the United States, and indeed, it was one of Goering's pet projects and named the American Bomber. Construction was due to begin in the autumn of 1945, but the war ended before significant progress could be made. Wow, some amazing designs there, especially that flying wing. Horton, uh, wow, that was impressive. So I have, yeah, I have a question Holton, about that one. Yeah, go uh, ahead. Yeah, so so you so the uh, the Brits were looking at putting a uh, a, um, a jet engine in, into a captured uh, HO229. If I understood that correctly, yeah, to make it fly right, and they couldn't because of the centrifugal compressor. Does that mean that the yeah. the, the big, Germans big they had actual actual flow compressors? Absolutely, yes, they oh, did. Oh wow. Yeah, because like they independently uh, developed jet engines, uh, as did the Brits, uh, as did the, who else? Uh, I'm trying to think, there was another country, the Italians. Uh, and uh, yeah, they went, they didn't go to the compressor, uh, com, uh, centrifugal compressors. Centri they went straight to, okay, pure, went straight the to pure action. jets that we're familiar with. So that their amazing. engines were slim and powerful. They were really, really advanced stuff. Um, compared yeah. with anyone else in the world. 
Wow. Horton Fleur what? Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss, yeah. <laughs> Horton uh, is one of the characters in Dr. Seuss uh, books. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I now my, my mic has put that up. I must uh, mention that the whole idea of this particular tale came from uh, his suggestion that I take a look at the rainbow. Um, you know, that, that four-engine aircraft, the mm -hmm. first that was going to do all the fours, mm. uh, and which was a remarkable design. And of course, once I started looking at that, I was thinking, there must be a few other... Oh, thanks, Liz. There must be a few other uh, airplanes like that that we hardly know about because they kind of just... The jet age overtook them. And uh, yeah. Yeah, there are some of them. Uh, so yeah. I enjoyed that. I've got a few more, so... If you enjoyed that one, let me know, and uh, I'll put in part two at some point. Oh, I'll yeah. Well, I'd like to put my yeah, vote in for that. I mean, I thought it was fascinating <laughs> stuff. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, look, uh, look there's um, Colin Goon, who's his uh, dad, uh, flew boomerangs uh, and was a test pilot with CAC, so that's fantastic. Uh, I, I think uh, he was a brave man flying those boomerangs. They... Uh, they uh, uh, they didn't look the. I think they were basically buffaloes, if I'm not mistaken. But they they weren't the best performance of, uh, of aircraft. But they were very sturdy. They were very sturdy, uh, capable ground attack aircraft. So so long as they had decent fighter cover, and I'm pretty sure the Aussies had a bunch of Mustangs and Spitfires towards the end of the war, uh, they'd probably go out and do a great job. And then uh, Nettie Seagoon. Uh, thanks, Nick. Yes, a lot of history <laughs> with my father. I think that's Colin. Oh, is it? Over, uh, yeah, he came over from Facebook. Oh, oh you know okay. where the name Neddy Seagoon comes from? No, I don't. I, I don't know what, I don't oh. recognize that at all. <laughs> it's from uh, the uh, the Goon Show. It was a, a British comedy radio show, and I think eventually it might have made it to TV, um, with people like uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore uh, on it, those sort okay. of people. Well, Liz is telling me so. that this is actually Colin uh, as well, <laughs> coming over from uh, Facebook. I guess uh, he just has a different oh, name on it. YouTube. Okay, so he's putting a double effort in. Okay, yes, well yes. So it's uh, a lot of history with my father, including flying Boeing P-26A pea shooter with the Chinese Air Force prior to the outbreak <laughs> of World War II. What is no? What really? is is that the real name of the Boeing? I can't imagine that they'd name a, a an airplane the pea shooter. Was well, that, the Aussies probably named it the pea shooter. Probably, yeah. The you know, if if something's not up to snuff, they'll soon let you know. <laughs> they won't hold back, will they? <laughs> exactly. Right. They they call a spade a shovel, <laughs> or a shovel a spade. All right. Yeah. I guess they're still calling the hornet the hornet, so I guess we did that right. Yeah. Oh, well, have. yeah. They, they were really <laughs> pleased with the hornet. I'm not kidding. Uh, after the uh, the French lady they flew, the Mirage mm. 3, uh, which, to be fair, they modified uh, out of existence. Uh, they put mods in there, a bit like the Israelis. They, uh, they took the basic design and they improved on it uh, enormously. Uh, the French were quite interested in all that stuff. But the F-18, of course, well, what a step up for the, mm. their their capabilities. And now, of course, they've got F-35s and uh, Super Hornets. So, Super Hornets, right. Yeah, the, the Australian Air Force is really well equipped. So mm. if you don't, you know, you want to take someone on uh, over that side of the world, I wouldn't pick the Aussies. <laughs> well, it turns out that the pea shooter really is the, the name of this uh, 
this airplane. Really? Yeah. Let me uh, share this here on the screen. Um, The Boeing built a pea shooter. Yeah. Share. All right. There we go. Can you see that? Oh, my God. It looks like one of those old uh, pylon races. Mm-hmm. It does. I know. They had in the yeah. 1930s. It's an wow. engine with some wings and a tail stuck on it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Name. The engine looks enormous. I wonder, I wonder if they call it pea shooter because of the P factor because of that engine. Oh. The Delta P? It could be no, the Delta No, no, no. The P. The- <laughs> <laughs> no delta p on that one no <laughs> yeah it looks does look no, like a straight p factor torque yeah <laughs> very torquey uh, brilliant oh man okay interesting good stuff really i enjoyed that one yeah thank you, Nick. enjoyed that thanks all right so you've got uh, just about half an hour left jeff just okay thank you uh liz um i am going to do this one now this is going to be a good one, I believe, and I need to start off with uh, playing something that I should have been more uh, prepared for. Here we go. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about uh, up, up and away in my beautiful balloon, or in this case, a what, what's the technical name? A An aerostat. <laughs> Colonel Jeff sent this in. He says, startup says it'll fly passengers between cities in giant blimps and uh, giant buttocks. Now, you know, we've <laughs> we've covered. Yeah, that's what it reminds us of. Uh, let me see. We've we've talked about the uh, air lander on previous shows. I don't know why it's back in the news. For some reason, it is. Uh, I'm going to play some video just kind of as as background video for those who are watching um, the uh, YouTube slash Facebook live. Uh, And then we're going to talk about this article. Okay, here we go. Open and here we go. I'm going to turn off the uh, sound. This is a a video I found on some of the first flights of the Airlander 10, I believe. And it's about to land. It's a flare, 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 flare. Oh, pull up, pull up. Go around. <laughs> Oops. Uh, Oops. Yeah, I think that kind of crushed the. Uh, f- I don't think it was a successful <laughs> flight test. That one, flight number zero zero two. Here's flight zero zero three on the tenth of May, twenty seventeen. I think they did a a better job on this particular test they flight. Still look like they've got some longitudinal stability problems. Yeah, it does. Mm. It does. Anyway, uh, for some reason, this is in the news, and Colonel Jeff decided that. Uh, Nick would really enjoy it. Uh, for those fancying a trip from Liverpool to Belfast or Belfast or Barcelona to the uh, Balearic Islands, Balearic Islands, I'm not sure. Yep, you're right. Uh, but concerned about the carbon footprint of aeroplane travel, a small Bedford-based company is promising a surprising solution, commercial airships. Hybrid Air Vehicles, HAV, which has developed a new environmentally friendly airship, 84 years after the Hindenburg disaster, on Wednesday, uh, named a string of routes it hoped to serve from 2025. The routes for the 100-passenger Airlander 10 airship include Barcelona to Palma de Mallorca in four and a half hours. The company said the journey by airship would take roughly the same time as aeroplane travel once 
getting to and from the airport was taken into account, but would generate a much smaller carbon footprint. Uh, HAV said the CO2 footprint per passenger on its airship would be about 4.5 kilograms compared with about 53 via a jet plane. Other routes included Liverpool to Belfast, which would take five hours and 20 minutes, Oslo to Stockholm in six and a half hours, and Seattle to Vancouver in just over four hours. HAV, which has in the past attracted funding from Peter Hambro, a founder of Russian gold miner um, Petropavlovsk, I don't know, Petropavlovsk, uh, and Iron Maiden frontman Bruce Dickinson, said his aircraft was ideally suited to intercity mobility applications like Liverpool to Belfast and Seattle to Vancouver which airliner can service with a tiny fraction of the emissions of current air operations. Uh, let's see. Yeah, more more stuff okay. here in this article. So, yes, Nick, what, what's your opinion of this? Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> I think you probably, I think you you probably uh, be able to walk it a little quicker. But no, I mean, uh, I, I think it's, uh, it has a certain novel factor. Um uh-huh. You know, flying that, and uh, of course, uh, I, I love um, the interior. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks very, very luxurious. <laughs> but that's just an artist's um, mock-up. I mean, did you notice that all these that we're watching here on 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 the uh, video just have like a control cab in the front, and that's it? I don't see a hundred passenger uh, no, capacity no, that, on this that's, thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. So I, I, I'm thinking it's a bit like the, the 747 mock-ups when they first came in. You know, like there were lounges and, mm-hmm. and you know, huge, great big bars and Looks things. Like a big shark. And of course, <laughs> in, yeah, it does. In the reality, of course, uh, people just want to cram seats in. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Um, I, I, city to city. Uh, you're not going to put. Where are you going to land in a city? Exactly. That's what I was, was going to say. How the hell are you going to put that thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And then you got to get to it, you know. And then and, I, I don't imagine they're going to have a lot of these. You know, a lot of these, I guess, uh, airship uh, airports or whatever you call them. Yeah. And so yeah, you take into account the fact that yeah, it might take you as long, just as long to go yeah. by airplane. But then you first have to get to that place, and then you jump on that thing and then you might as well walk it yeah. and then once you land you still need to get to your destination from there so it's, yeah. yeah so just they, if they you take one of the, I'm sorry go ahead. They, they don't call them airports uh, Rick they call them uh, crash sites <laughs> <laughs> what are those two things we're watching this video as background footage um, what are those two things on either side of the control cab that are kind of poking out there that I could only assume they're a kind of Pitching control because they seem to blow air in and out of them. Yeah, yeah. They might be a kind of a nose wheel as well, although a wheel is obviously a relative term. Yeah, yeah. like little I things just, to keep, yeah. like little stops to keep it from crushing the cab, like in that first flight that we were looking at. <laughs> <laughs> See, exactly. This is this is the second yeah. iteration of this monstrosity. Apparently, mm-hmm. I mean, my my other question is. Um, you, you know, to make them safe, you can't put hydrogen in the gas. You've got to put helium in them. Yeah, helium's a, a, a rare gas. Uh, and there's only a limited supply of it. You can't make helium. It's it's there. Once you've used all the helium up, there will be no more helium. 
Um, and you, you can use vast amounts of it in these for a rather dubious form of travel. So I know, but the PAs will be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> High pitched voice could be great. <laughs> this is your cabin speed. <laughs> Good point. I mean, now oh, totally that you've it. mentioned that, uh, Rick, I'm thinking I'm all for this. This yeah. would be a lot of fun. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm Just sold. so we can listen Do to it. the PAs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Likewise. Well, Colonel Jeff, you, know, you, you, you hit a home mission run with that one. Yeah, mission accomplished. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. And by the way, Colonel Jeff is with us in the chat room of the live uh, audience. And, you know, and this is a reminder to those of you listening to the audio only podcast or watching the videos um, after the fact. You should join us while we're recording live. Just follow us on APG Crew and at Airline Pilot Guy and on Facebook, Airline Pilot Guy, and uh, you'll be notified when we record each week. And uh, I think you'll have a lot of fun with these. You'll usually get 12 hours notice at least. Yeah. And now we have to admit, yeah, well, you know, that's enough. Um, (laughs) We have to admit, though, the cast of characters uh, that are present in our live audience uh, chat rooms are a little questionable. But, um, you know, shady. Oh, yeah, they're, they're a, a shady. dodgy lot <laughs> dodgy. this week. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, now we love them. And uh, many of them uh, are here with us every, every time we record, which is very nice. Except for the ones that we don't want to be there. And uh, we yeah, can't seem to get rid of them. Well, if, if, we, if we included <laughs> that, it'd be a very small list. <laughs> I know. Well, we won't go into a lot of detail there. Um, so, Jeff, 12 next and okay. then 16. Let's do 12 next, Liz is suggesting. Yes, because we, I mentioned that we were going to try to cover this in today's show because we were talking earlier about the, uh, the supermoon and we were not talking about the Southwest uh, captain. Uh, we were talking about some <laughs> other uh, story yeah. regarding the supermoon. Um, this is from Tim Van Ram. You ever heard of him? Uh, he says, hi, APG lunatics. I'm sure I won't be the only APGer to send this story to you about the Qantas flight to nowhere. Uh, actually, I think he is the only one that sent it. Uh, that took passengers up to see the super blood moon eclipse. The chosen airliner was a Boeing as it had the larger windows to peer at the lunar event. When one has the opportunity to go to the moon, why would you go on a bus? <laughs> Bam. Um, okay. Burn. Burn. Yeah. Um, so this is an article from uh, CNN, uh, what it was like on board the Qantas supermoon flight to nowhere. The moon was illuminated by a bright coppery red, big and beaming in the night sky. And as people on the ground in Australia and New Zealand and parts of the Western United States peered up to admire this rare super blood moon eclipse on May 26th, Perhaps the best view of the astronomical marvel came from 43,000 feet in the sky aboard a Qantas-operated flight to nowhere. By the way, just a little quick break here. Uh, As mentioned, Western U.S., um, Rick, were you able to see this at all? I saw it. I was was on the ground in in Honolulu, though. I was out out on the beach. Yeah, but uh, I saw it. It was really pretty. All right, crisscrossing the skies above Sydney Harbor for three hours, 180 travelers enjoyed a front row seat for this spectacular lunar event. It was wonderful. I think I've never seen How the moon in such a How many windows are in this aeroplane? Um, Apparently enough. I don't know. 180? They're big. <laughs> They're 
They're, yeah. they're big windows. Mm. But they were all piled yeah, in the front row. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's just uh, the airplane. So you, you, you only got to see it half the time. I was going to say, the airplane like, kept tipping <laughs> as well when everybody was you know, like crowded over to yeah. one side and then they went to the other <laughs> side. <laughs> <laughs> it was worse than that darn cargo door <laughs> open. Let me tell you. Oh, yeah. I think, I think they made aileron trim for that. I think. Yeah, a lot. Let's see. So I guess, uh, let's see, the seat, the price for an economy ticket was 499 Australian dollars, which is about $10 U.S. No, I'm just kidding. It's uh, 386 <laughs> U.S. and uh, 1160 for a business class seat. I'm sorry. Don't, don't, uh, don't, you know. Get upset with me, you Australians. The problem with those business classes is they don't actually usually line up with a window. You could end up in a business class seat that, you know, Uh, just has a bit of wall beside it. Very true. Very true. It's happened to me. It's like, window? This is (laughs) false advertisement. What the hell is this? (laughs) Yeah, I do hate that. When you're in a window seat and there's no window there. (laughs) Wait a minute. This is a joke, right? Uh, let's yeah, see. I'm call the Better Business Bureau over here. A picture here, maybe, if I can find it quickly enough, where you can see the people peering out the uh, out the window. Okay, here we go. And then I do this, and I go over here and do... Thank you, Liz. There yeah, we go. It might have so, been an idea to turn the cabin lights down a bit. I was going to say think? just that. <laughs> bring, bring, bring the cabin lights yeah. down a little bit. Yeah, and they just put them up for the photo. I think that that one window is like in the door, isn't it? That's not a very big window. Yeah, that's, that's a tiny that's window. A, yeah. No, I mean, it's, a, it's, I mean, it's big enough. I mean, those, those, yeah. I, I mean, seriously, those, those windows on the seven, eight are, are pretty big. They're yeah. big, big windows. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. No window shade either, so you know that's completely out of the way. That is true. Yeah, good point. All right, let me go back. Here we go. Well, if you, if you, you're going to put the picture up of the crew not looking where they're going. Yeah, I can do that. Um, okay, let's let's go back. Yeah, this is uh, probably not uh, not good uh, footage for us to. Uh, no, be but sure. I mean, but to be fair, the landing gear levers down, field control switches are off, so they're on the ground. So they're, they're just landing. This is the touchdown. <laughs> yeah. Look, Mom, no and, hands. And somebody comes up with a camera, and they all turn around. And smile. <laughs> that was the last we've seen of this uh, of this flight. I've never seen a captain flight engineer before. Well, I never. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I don't think there is a flight He's engineer. He's mining the on panel. That. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's still looking for the panel. Yeah. <laughs> like, where, where, where's the panel? I don't understand. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's enough. Here we go. Um. Yeah. So there we go. Um, yeah, as, as Rick mentioned, the flight took place on a Boeing 787 Dreamliner picked because of its large windows that offer optimum opportunities for moon gazing, moon gazing. All right. I'd like to point out that friends of the earth told, uh, CNN travel, they, they saw the flight as essentially the definition of a pointless trip. <laughs> well, <laughs> Well, oh, uh, aviation enthusiast Rory told CNN he was excited not only to see this rare lunar event from the air, but also to get the chance to fly on a 787 Dreamliner aircraft for the first time since the pandemic hit Australia. The view from the plane window was like nothing I'd seen before, said his name is Ding. 
I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> I wonder if the I wonder if the if the passengers had to quarantine after that flight because apparently every time oh. you go to Australia, you quarantine, even but, if you left Australia. But they didn't they didn't leave it though, right? No, no. I don't know. It's a good it's a joke. Must, must have left territory. Oh, actually, they went up and down Sydney, so perhaps they didn't even leave territorial waters. Yeah. <laughs> Which one did you oh, say, man. Liz? Next one. Say. Sixteen. Sixteen. Okay. Skipping over to 16, this is from Brian. He said, I've been listening to the show for just over a year now, and I'm thoroughly disgusted. No, wait, no, that's not what he said. Uh, but I'm probably... <laughs> Don't blame me, Brian. <laughs> but I'm probably lagging a month or so behind the live recording, so this is going to be slightly dated. Just listen to Captain Nick's Plain Tale series about Red Flag. Oh, he has... He's way behind. Red Flag, and then the news article excuse me, about a 747 engine failure over Maastricht. Maastricht? Is that right? Maastricht? Maastricht. Maastricht, yeah. uh, which happened in February. Uh, just so happened that I was listening to those episodes while I was at Red Flag in Vegas. Not as a pointy-nose guy, though. Sorry, Captain Nick. Also Ooh. happens that I live in the city of Maastricht uh, in the Netherlands and regularly see a variety of freighters fly in and out to include a couple of 747s. I'm a U.S. Air Force E-3 AWACS pilot flying with the NATO, with NATO in Europe. Maybe Nick knows of uh, Geilenkirchen NATO Air Base in Germany? Heard of it. Never been there, but uh, I'm sure it's a lovely base. Yeah. Anyway, an absolute joy to fly with crew members from every NATO country. Based on the discussions in the podcast that seem to be following me around, I figured I should finally send in some feedback. Yeah, it's about time, Brian. Oh, brilliant. Uh, Captain Rick, I know you've taken a break from international flying, but have you ever flown into Maastricht? Uh, if you have in the yes, last few times. years, I've probably seen you. Or maybe you've seen an AWACS flying around the area. Thanks so much, Brian. I've seen the AWACS flying around the area. And yeah. uh, Maastricht, Maastricht, nice, nice airport. Maastricht. It, uh, the, 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 the runway there, it's... Uh, it's kind of interesting because if I remember it correctly, well, maybe I'm misremembering, but I think it's Maastricht where the, where the, um, uh, as you come in, I forget which, I guess, threshold is, but the, the, the first uh, part of the runway there kind of slopes up and uh, gives you a little bit of a visual illusion you know, that, that you have to account for. Um, but yeah, I mean, and isn't Ma Maastricht where that uh, that 7-4 uh, uh, went off the side of the runway on takeoff? I believe that's where it was as well. Mm. Um, yeah. Don't know. But yeah, been there. Been, been to Maastricht many, no. many, many times. Well, did you Good have place. something to do with that 747 that went off the runway? Uh, no, but that's the reason why I don't fly with noise-canceling headsets, because had they been wearing just regular headsets, they would have heard the engine not spooling up at the same uh, rate. But uh, that's a story for another podcast. Okay. Well, I wear noise suppression headsets, and I can hear the engines. That's weird. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Maybe not. Yeah, you just don't wear very good ones. Well, mm -hmm. actually, to be honest, I very rarely <laughs> turn on the noise-canceling thing uh aspect oh, of helps. it yeah because the well yeah. the the what do they call that the passive yeah the, the ear cup yeah the ear cup yeah. over the is is plenty of uh noise it's suppression enough. actually mm. for me and in yeah. that particular in the airplane that i fly anywho 
Okay. Yeah. But and, that, that, and, and you have the engines way behind you. So. Yeah. Way back in the back, a little closer to me now because mm-hmm. the airplanes, you know, smaller and shorter. No. But, uh, yeah, that was one of the weird things when I first got on the 88, I'm thinking, I don't hear the engines. <laughs> it's like way so far back, like a hundred and something feet back. Um, anyway, what was I going to say? Oh, but I have worn, um, the Bose, noise suppression um, headphones in like GA airplanes. And it makes a huge difference, (laughs) like really, really big difference in those kind of airplanes. Those are noisy. They do a great job. Anyway, um, which one did you say, uh, Liz? I'm sorry. 10. Oh, yeah. Let's go to 10 from uh, Stefan. From Stefan. And uh, so I guess we were talking about on a previous flight, uh, oh, JJ Pittsburgh sent in some audio feedback on the last uh, episode, I believe, about, um, you know, if we, in addition to logging hours, because that's what we always talk about, do we actually log, you know, individual flights or, you know, landings and all these different things. And I think the consensus was that most of us don't here on the crew. I don't know, maybe um, maybe you do. Were you on the, I don't know, you weren't with us uh, last week, uh, Rick. So do you log no, like individual flights and all that kind of stuff? No, I haven't for for a long, long time. I don't know how many hours I have. I I know it's somewhere between between ten and fifteen thousand. Yeah. So apparently, uh, Stefan logs all this stuff because on Twitter, uh, he said, "Hey, at airline pilot guy, again, sorry for the gin." Okay. Yeah. Well, he sent me some really nice special in a special gin and a special bottle, and unfortunately, I screwed up because I didn't check my. PO box often enough, and uh, it it went away. I think probably drunk by the post office people. I'm not oh, sure. They said that they tried yeah. to send it back to you, Stefan, but I, I, I'd be very surprised if you ever see that. But uh, yeah, so I feel bad. Uh, don't you feel bad? Um, but anyway, he said regarding flights logging, he has logged 347 piston flights, 8,307 jet flights, 10 turboprop. He has 5,369 landings, 3,828 on jets, 26 commercial um, go-arounds. No, commercial uh, GA, general aviation, I'm thinking. Um, or maybe that is a go-around. What do you think? No, no, I think oh, that probably ahead. is go-arounds. Okay, so, go around. he's actually logged his go-arounds even. Uh, 16 Good diversions. Go. That's an awful lot of go-arounds. Yeah, well, you what know, you're wrong, wrong, man. You have to be stabilized, Stephen, and Stephen, what are you doing wrong, Stephen apparently is, doesn't fly a stabilized airplane. <laughs> He's very unstable. <laughs> I mean, I thought I'd done a lot. I'd done about four or really? five oh, I've in done 25 years. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, did, I did one not too long, actually, what, two weeks ago? Going into uh, Kona. Yeah, I saw but, that. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Just kidding. Well, you guys fly in the States a lot. You know what the air traffic's like. Yeah, yeah a bunch of cowboys. Uh, let's see, 16 diversions, 2,406 lovely sim hours. And oh, my God. He, this is an amazing fa- a stat, I think. 23,942 passengers since 2009. Wow, wow. that's a lot. What really caught my eye here is that he's got he's got more takeoffs than landings. I was just wondering what's going on there. Good point. Mm, Yeah, Yeah, uh, Liz is making the point that he uh, that passenger figure is somewhat um, uh, I don't know what the right inflated because uh, he flies the Airbus A three eighty or he did anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So yeah, what did you say? The uh, the takeoffs and landings don't match. Yeah, yeah. His 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 take. He's got more takeoffs and landings there. So Uh-oh. I was wondering if uh, he could send another piece of feedback to explain. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying, what what are you looking at? Doesn't say that. <laughs> Apparently, takeoffs aren't that important because he didn't log those. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Well, thank you for uh, that. Uh, obviously. Um, Stefan is a, an accountant or something. I don't know. He's into stats. No, he, he's German. Joyce oh, German. <laughs> there we go. Yes. <laughs> okay. I don't know what that means, Stefan. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. That's a good it's thing. A good yeah. Thing. And this kind. Of, yeah. You can take it up with. He has a lot of attention to detail. Have you ever owned Very a German so. motor car? Oh, God. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's all. I tell you, the other day I flew a 7.6 that was previously owned by Condor uh, Airlines in Germany. Yeah, that thing was was immaculate, spotless. It was great. Even and we've had it for a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. And just the way the way they 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 take care of their their equipment and the aircraft is just phenomenal. Mm. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, oh, let's let's do uh, number eight since we have uh, Rick here with us today. That he might have okay. something to say Dizzy about this. Doing all this. Um, let's see. Uh, my name is Jose. And I've been an avid APG podcast listener lately, and I really love it. I worked for uh, Qatar Airways, or Qatar, your choice, as an A320 captain from 2017 until the pandemic hit and was laid off in October 2020. Previously, I've worked for Avianca Airlines for 14 years, all on the A320 family aircraft. I always hear your podcast when I... (laughs) condolences from rick always hear your podcast when i take a run around my neighborhood for about an hour or so i finish a complete episode every three days or so i don't run marathons (laughs) uh let's see uh on the near miss between the a330 and the skywest aircraft at san diego ksan there are Myriad of situations that could delay the takeoff. One of the reasons could be that the cabin crew is not ready for takeoff. Usually the takeoff configuration test is done during taxiing, and it's the last item on the before takeoff checklist down to the line. Airbus divides long checklists in two, down to the line and below the line, and there is only a couple of things that actually gives configuration warning when the power is set for takeoff. Putting power with the parking brake set, and engine thrust lever not set if the crew forgot to put flex temp on mcdu for a flex takeoff and they put the thrust levers on the flex mct detent uh okay interesting good good information there i uh oh hang on i gotta get something ready to go here okay um i always i also practice rick's technique to leave the autopilot on when there is traffic on the runway and disconnect it until the other traffic has cleared the runway, just in case a go-around is necessary. I would have less workload, especially uh, at busy airports like LAX, Miami, or JFK. On the 321 tail strike in uh, airport, did you know that the A321 has more tail strikes than any other Airbus aircraft, even more than the A340-600, the longest aircraft ever built? I didn't know that. That's yeah, the uh, the 
now. Oh, it is it, now. Okay. It used to. It held the record until Boeing got really annoyed and built the Dash 8 just <laughs> to have an airplane that was longer than... I tell you what, though, taxiing that seven four dash eight around, it's uh, it's quite interesting. And the and the dash eights, the the freighters, they don't have taxi cameras, so it's all done by the seat of your pants. Oh boy! So yeah, that'd be Boeing cheapskating again. <laughs> wow! No, it's Moving just freighters the getting the short end of the pants? stick as usual. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Liz is saying, "Wow, moving the yoke with the seat of your pants." Wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, that, that takes talent right there. And the majority of... That, that's uh, a cargo pilot trait, obviously. <laughs> okay, so let me get I back to I this feedback from Jose, please. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's, you let's. two, calm down. Uh, so the 321 has more tail strikes, and the majority are during landing. You have to be careful with the A321 during landing, especially in windy, windy conditions. A 321 pitch callout during landing is only 7.5 degrees nose up, and the actual tail strike being at 9.7 degrees nose up with the shock absorber fully compressed. I want to mention two days ago was the 33rd anniversary of Taka's Flight 110. I had the honor to fly with Captain Carlos Dardano, who was, am I saying that right, Nick, or Rick? Dard- uh-huh, yep. Dardano? Uh, who was? I think it's, uh, it's Dardano with the, Dardano, the Dardano. inflection in the, in the, in the first well, syllable there. Dardano, I, but, I uh, could say it like that, but I'm not going to. There you go. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Cultural yeah, appropriation so on my part. I don't want to do that. <laughs> who was in command of Taka 110. He landed on a grass levee close to um, Moissant Airfield. Uh, most of us know it as uh, New Orleans International. After both engines flamed out in bad weather. Yeah, we were talking about this earlier. Uh, in this case, it was uh, water ingestion from severe mm-hmm. rain and uh, thunderstorm on the investigation the ntsb found out that a flaw on the engine design that design that led to both engine flameouts in these conditions uh captain dardano didn't have any ptsd from that flight <laughs> and he didn't sue his airline nor boeing he loves to share his story with colleagues watch mayday tv series season 11 chapter 11 and then uh, also uh, Liz uh, pointed out in, in this piece of feedback that Nick did a PT on this particular incident, the dead stick on this incident, uh, uh, APG 327. So I'll try to put a link in there. Yeah. So a, people a can go to that. Uh, a remarkably skillful landing considering the conditions. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the situation the he was piece. faced with. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And what was remarkable was they... It was such a great landing. I agree. They turned the airplane around uh, after checking it out and took it off again. Off a grass bank. Oh, cool. I mean, for heaven's sake. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. Oh, anyway, Jose says, I will continue to listen to APG and maybe join your live chat next time. I don't know. Is he here? I don't know. If you are, raise your hand, please. No, I don't think he's there. Um, But maybe, maybe the time after. Who knows? Uh, again, this is Jose Sujo, and I believe he's also a uh, a new, um, I don't know if he's a patron or a contributor uh, to the Coffee Fund Classic. Yeah, he's a, he's a new member of the Coffee Fund Cadre, or the Coffee Bar Club, your choice. So, thank you, Jose. I must for- admit, I, I remember Captain L talking uh, seriously about the, the problems of tail striking the 321. Mm-hmm. It really was. You know, you had a very small margin, and you had to be quite careful. Yeah. I guess all the air, airplanes that have, you know, they keep 
stretching them and and uh anything beyond that uh behind that main landing gear is just you're just asking for trouble right if you just keep making it longer and longer so i guess the uh the 737-900 also has um issues with tail strikes more than any of the other 737 models all right well that is going to do it for today's show. We're going to wrap this thing up and we're going to move all of the uh, remaining leftover feedback uh, to the next show. So if you're listening and you haven't heard yours yet, don't worry. We haven't thrown it away and unless you're somebody we don't like. And then maybe Liz did. I don't know. I'll blame it on her. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, she's very, very particular about uh, good feedback. Anyway, no, I'm just kidding. Um, so let's talk about what we always talk about at the end of the show, which is first we mention our our uh, website, uh, airlinepilotguy.com. Lots of good stuff there to find out information about us and the community. And uh, we're also on um, social media. And uh, I maybe who wants to do the social media rundown this this week? Don't all speak. Yeah, I'll or, do it, I guess. All right. Go ahead. Oh. <laughs> Nick, Nick clocked out, apparently. <laughs> Nick, Nick just went went black. Uh, just his screen is gone. <laughs> yeah, we know you're there, though. You can't fool us. <laughs> we can see you. We yeah, can we can see you. We can kind of see you. <laughs> so, uh, Facebook page, Airline Pilot Guy, for everything Airline Pilot Guy related on that fine platform um <laughs> and that uh using fine uh, very uh, you know liberally here uh <laughs> yeah. twitter we're at uh, at apg crew uh there's uh, everything uh apg related there as well and then you can also follow us on uh on instagram at apg crew and i will start posting on instagram i need to have a lot of stuff that i have to put on there i just ha- don't have the access to it quite yet but i'm gonna you know, we're gonna get that fixed here and i'll start po- posting there sweet and uh, there's one more way yeah apparently what would that be uh oh i, I think okay. uh i think uh, i think is is, is is did he i think he, he made it uh, i think he's there yeah. wait i gotta turn up the uh he- hello oh. hello slack All right. Well, you know, we deal with this every week, and we we have towels, right? Okay. Come over here and tell all these fine people about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. We do appreciate it. And uh, yeah, if you have any questions about that, contact Hillel. LL at airlinepilotguy.com or slack at airlinepilotguy.com. And let's see, also, we have to mention our fine producer director, Liz Piper in Toronto. She does an amazing Great, job well done, each Liz. and every week. Great job. Thank you. Great job with the uh, plane tail this week. Yes. So good, good stuff, Liz. Couldn't do it without her. And Thanks, guys. 
You're welcome. And until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Be excellent to each other and we'll see you next time. Ta-ta for now. Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot. Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline not a guy I fly I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy